Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C., good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us out there, all you rumblers. We're also on the good old radio. Remember that thing? We're on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM here in the D.C. Metro. We're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM, and 104.7 FM on that radio dial. I am the Vixen of Veritas, the Thrilla in Manila, Chan, along with guest co-hosts, the Atomic MAGA, Malik Abdul. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. Good morning, good morning. Happy Tuesday. We are a week away from a the midterm. A week away from midterm. Are you going to vote? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go in I, because in D.C. they send you the absentee ballots yes. anyway. But I, I'm going to go ahead and go in. Uh, of course, in D.C., we kind of know what the outcome will be, so it's not <laughs> like my vote will change very much. But fortunately, I will say there are a few Republicans that I can vote for because typically... We don't have any Republicans. They're not running. even on the ticket. Yeah, here in D.C. Yeah, I, I, uh, while I lived in D.C., I refused to give up my California residency. I was like, I'm not staying here forever. Everyone does. I, I held I'm not on. Staying here. I held on to my Mississippi ID until DMV told me, bro, this is it's time. Yeah, you've yeah, been I, here long enough. I hung enough. on and hung on and hung on, and then I realized. I wasn't leaving. <laughs> right. I was consumed by the belly of the You're beast. You're here. You are here. And I had to accept that I was no longer a California resident. But, you know, same thing. No matter which way I voted, didn't matter because California was going yep. blue. It's blue. So didn't matter. With that, let's head over to the headlines for today. A lot of stuff going on. Let's start off uh, over in... Or in Europe, over in Russia. Let's start there. Speaking at a press conference in Sochi with the leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan following trilateral talks aimed at restoring peace in the Caucasus, Russian President Vladimir Putin said that Ukrainian forces had endangered cargo ships carrying grain through a humanitarian corridor that was set up by Russian forces to allow their passage near the conflict zone. He said, quote, these drones, both underwater and aerial, they partially traveled in the corridor along which grain is exported from Ukraine. And in this way, they created a threat to both our ships, which should ensure safety of grain export, and to civilian ships that are engaged in this. And we have pledged to ensure this security. But if, pardon me for the expression, if Ukraine strikes these ships, we will be guilty. Just like everyone is now blathering on about what Russia is doing, not remembering what caused it, but it is caused by creating a threat to this humanitarian corridor, he added. Then over to domestic news. The suspect arrested in connection with the attack on Mr. Paul Pelosi, husband of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is facing federal assault and attempted kidnapping charges for his alleged role in the incident, says the DOJ. DePape is, quote, DePape is charged with one count of assault of an immediate family member of a United States official 
with the intent to retaliate against the official on account of the performance of official duties. DePape is also charged with one count of attempted kidnapping of a United States official on account of the performance of official duties, says a DOJ statement. Now, the first charge carries a maximum sentence of 30 years in prison, and the second charge, a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. And former President Donald Trump has filed an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court asking them to block the release of his tax documents to a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives committee, according to a document released on Monday, quote, This case raises important questions about the separation of powers that will effectively affect, that will affect every future president, says the appeal. It goes on to say, the only way to preserve these... Now, I'm no attorney, so pardon me if I say this wrong. This is hard for me. Certiorari worthy questions and to avoid causing applicants irreparable harm is for this court to grant an administrative stay by Wednesday, November 2nd. Now, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled to allow the release of the IRS documents pertaining to Trump to go into effect back on October 3rd. Now, in mid-October, separate story here, President Joe Biden has expressed concern that the Republicans could jeopardize future aid for Ukraine after current House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy vowed to cease writing blank checks to Kiev if the Republicans get the majority in the lower chamber of Congress after the upcoming midterm elections. Now, according to U.S. media, a rare split has emerged within the Republican Party, which is likely to escalate into a more open battle if the party gains control of Congress and faces, quote, forceful requests from Biden and, quote, emotional appeals from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Now, a division within the Republicans presents a challenge for Biden, who has been working to, quote, hold together a domestic and global coalition to support Ukraine amid rising food and gas prices, as well as a global hunger crisis. Then a diesel supply alert has been issued, at least out here on the U.S. or U.S. East Coast, with Mansfield Energy, a leader in petroleum marketing and fuel supply, describing the current market as, quote, rapidly devolving. They say, quote, Markets are now seeing extremely high prices in the Northeast, along with supply outages along the Southeast. The warning issued by the fuel logistics company also noted. Now, the alert in that memo was extended to states that include North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and Maryland. Now, as it issued its advisory to businesses that rely on diesel, Mansfield Energy underscored that while typically the East Coast markets have 50 million barrels in storage, there were less than half, less than 25 million barrels available right now. Then 14 people, including three minors, three kids, injured in a shooting during Halloween festivities in the U.S. city of Chicago, local police say, uh, as of the early hours this morning. 
The incident occurred at about 9.30 p.m. on Monday night when unidentified assailants opened fire from a car at a group of people gathered at uh, an outing place. Now, the shooting lasted just a few seconds. Preliminary data showed that there were two shooters. Quote, we have reported at least up to 14 people were shot. They are all in various conditions between critical and non-life-threatening. We, have al- we also have a person struck by a vehicle at the scene as well, says Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown talking to reporters, specifying that the minors are aged just three. There's a three-year-old toddler, an 11-year-old, and a 13-year-old. So wishing well for all those people. Then to international news, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakhrova wants answers regarding the mysterious, it's done. Apparently the iPhone message allegedly sent by former Prime Minister Liz Truss to the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Apparently moments after the sabotage attacks against the Nord Stream pipelines back in late September. Quote, Zakrava says, to be honest, I don't care who got this information and how, I'm interested in London's answer to the following question. Did Prime Minister Liz Truss of Britain send a message to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken immediately after the Nord Stream gas pipeline was blown up with the words, it's done? Zakrava posted that in her Telegram channel. The spokeswoman suggested that, quote, millions of people around the world were waiting for answers to the question of how the planet's energy security was undermined and what role the Anglo-Saxons played in this terrorist attack. That sounds like white-on-white violent words there, fighting words. All the Caucasus people, the Anglo-Saxons, yeah. She actually was like specific Anglo. She went there with the Anglo-Saxons, the wasps. Then President Biden has raised his voice at Volodymyr Zelensky during their phone conversation as the Ukrainian president was, per the usual, asking for more aid. Anyone surprised? The report suggested that right after Biden confirmed that he had approved a $1 billion aid package, Zelensky started listing all the help that he needed, but wasn't receiving. This infuriated Biden, according to U.S. media reports, who then raised his voice to reprimand Zelensky, saying that the Ukrainian leader could show a little more gratitude now, the report also suggested that the relations between the two presidents only got better after Kiev went into damage control mode with Zelensky praising the U.S. for its generosity in weapons deliveries and financial aid. Then over in Brazil, more than 100 protests organized by truck drivers supporting Jair Bolsonaro, who lost the Sunday presidential election, have been taking place in 18 Brazilian states as of Monday night, according to Brazilian media. Now, according to official results from Brazil's Superior Electoral Court, 
released 100 after 100% of the ballots were processed earlier in the day. Bolsonaro lost in the Sunday runoff, walking away with 49.1% of the votes. Brazil's former president, the comeback kid, Lula, got 50.9%. Now, news portal G1 reports that more than 100 protests have been organized on the roads in the states of Bahia, Espirito Santo, Goyas, Minas Gerais, Mato Grosso, Mato Grosso do Sul, Parana, Rio de Janeiro, Rodonia, Rio Grande do Sul, Santa Catarina, Sao Paulo, Tocantins, Amazonas, Acre, Roraima, and Maranao. So a lot of states. And so our audience know our producers did this just for Manila. They couldn't wait till she came back so she can pronounce all of these names. I'm not even going to try it. Just read it phonetically. <laughs> just read it phonetically. But I'll tell you, I mean, yes, it's similar to Spanish, Portuguese, that is, but it's not quite Spanish. So it's a little bit harder. <laughs> it's a little bit harder. Not a whole lot of people speak Portuguese. More Spanish. Then over in tech news, the world's richest man, Elon Musk, as you know, he bought Twitter last week. That was the big word. Hence why I was wearing the shirt yesterday. Elon Musk will also, and I called this on my own Twitter, he will now act as the CEO of Twitter because he's a glutton for punishment. This dude is like CEO of Tesla, CEO of uh, SpaceX, uh, Boxable, which is like those fold-up houses, you know. He's like the CEO of everything. I already heard this guy sleeps like four hours a night tops. I think he wants to reduce it to like one hour. It, I love him or hate him. I got to give him props for uh, this dude just does not stop. Like I, I envy that. Some people can operate with no sleep. But according to the New York Stock Exchange filing, he's calling himself the CEO now. So, all right. Uh, he also had, uh, he dissolved the, the board, the Twitter board. I mean, it's going private, right? So bye, losers. Musk reign as the new owner and operator of Twitter began last week immediately after taking charge. We know that he sacked Twitter's previous bosses, Parag Agrawal, other top execs, um, the a lady called Vijaya Gade. She was basically the content boss, but she said she was, she was a lawyer, but she acted as a content chief and she's the one who kicked everybody off that um, said mean tweets. The CFO, Ned Siegel, and the company's general counsel, Sean Edgett, all removed from their post. We should also note, don't cry for me, Argentina. All these people had tens of millions of dollars in golden parachutes. So, yeah, I, I reported on that months back when Twitter, when he was talking about buying Twitter. Um, I reported this on my, my YouTube channel. I dug into what their golden parachutes look like. Tarek Agrawal is walking away with like $200 million or something. Like just something ridiculous, right? Like some of them are ranging in the hundreds of millions, some of them in the tens of millions. But all these top Twitter executives along with people on the board, doesn't matter that Elon's getting rid of them. They're walking away rich. They're, yeah, they're crying all the way to the bank. So it doesn't matter. Then in Earth Science News, three potentially killer asteroids this is a Jamaral topic. 
have been spotted by astronomers hiding in the glare of the sun. What makes the discovery of the trio of near-Earth objects called NEOs even more noteworthy is that one of them is the largest potentially hazardous object for our planet to be identified in close to a decade. The asteroids from within the orbits of Earth and Venus are typically difficult to observe as the sun shields them from telescope observations, however, using a dark energy camera mounted on the Victor M. Blanco 4-meter telescope at Cerro Tololo, the Inter-American Observatory in Chile. An international team of scientists conducted a sweeping so-called twilight survey to scour the area. And according to findings published by the team in the Astronomical Journal, they said, quote, Our twilight survey is scouring the area within the orbits of Earth and Venus for asteroids. So far, we have found two large near-Earth asteroids that are about one kilometer across a size that we call planet killers. Well, that's pleasant. That says, that's coming from Scott Shepard, Scott S. Shepard, an astronomer at the Earth and Planets Laboratory of the Carnegie Institute for Science in Washington here in D.C. Then this day in history, back in 1894, the vaccine for diphtheria announced by Dr. Emile Roux of Paris. In 1916, Paul Milyukov delivers in the Russian state Duma the famous stupidity or treason speech precipitating the downfall of the Boris Sturmer government. In 1952, Ivy Mike, the first thermonuclear weapon to utilize the H-bomb design of Edward Teller and Stanislaw Ulam, is detonated at the Marshall Islands out in the Pacific Ocean. And in 2012, scientists detect evidence of light from the universe's first stars predicted to have formed some 500 million years after the Big Bang. That's going to do it for your headlines. This Tuesday, November the 1st. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right, that was a lot of news today. That was a lot of news. A lot of stuff. But uh, I, I have to say, I kind of got a little kick out of the the Zelensky-Biden phone call. I, can you imagine that? It, it, but this is Biden's fault. This is, you did this. You created a petulant child. You did this. And so when he was going around, we saw him on television inviting all of Hollywood and everyone there. You know, we're elevating him on the world stage. You did that. He didn't just start saying that I'm not getting enough. He's been doing that. You did that. That was your creation. You have to deal with it. So now you're upset that he's still complaining about not getting more more money, more assistance. He's been doing that. I want that toy. Yeah. But Daddy, I want an atomic bomb. That's basically what just happened. And it's I, like, and Daddy, I, I want to, atomic bombs. Because do we have, is it Mark later that we have? Because I would love to talk yes. about Yes. Because, you know, put this in context. Why are you still, why this energy around we need more? Is it because you're failing? But help, I'm winning. I, I mean, just, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's a crazy thing. I, I don't know. Help, um, I'm winning, Malik. And do you know, does it, well, I should ask, are we going to break before? We are. To, okay. we'll, take, we'll take a quick break. We'll, we'll open the mic up uh, right after this break. Uh, take a breather. Have some water. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Atomic MAGA, Malik Abdul. I am here. So we're going to take the next few minutes. Uh, Jamal's not here. He's out in Brazil. Jamal is on the beach. Right. Reporting <laughs> from the beach in Rio. With I think, I think they have... Um, Nude beach. I don't know if they have nude beaches, but they're definitely. I wouldn't be surprised if there are nude beaches in Brazil. Definitely pro thong beaches there. <laughs> Def- well, that's all they wear. <laughs> so I, I guess it's, I've never been to Brazil. Good weather. So, you know, JT. And beautiful people. And beautiful, beautiful, beautiful bronzed people. So did you see the. I, I have. I did some digging on yesterday because we talked about the Musk versus Hillary Clinton. <laughs> So I did some digging, and you were you were definitely right. Um, Elon Musk was responding to Hillary Clinton, and it's good to talk about it because even though you know media outlets have been you know covering it, um, it's good to talk about what actually happened. So he Hillary Clinton apparently made a, a tweet saying some basically laying the blame on the Republicans for, for Paul Pelosi for Paul Pelosi. Then Musk does this little sarcastic tweet about, you know, the one we talked about yesterday. I heard that there was some, there's, more. there's a small chance that something is been... No, you know what? I think this time he was being reasonable where he said, let's just hold off. There's there's probably more to the story. See, I thought it was sarcasm, but he could have been serious. But he, and so he retweeted an actual article that was something that was written by the son of like UK son or something. The girl, the the the, oh, oh, the, the woman. S-O-N, son. Right, right, right. Um, and so that thing was real. But then apparently Politico wrote this article about how conservatives were using this to spread in disinformation, and they refer to the story about another person being um another a third person answering the door. Well, yeah, somebody opened the door, somebody let the cops in. So there is still some, it, it says, um, it says gazy or it's as um, unclear as being able to see outside today because right. it's overcast it here in D.C. It is very foggy today. But they're saying that the um, police department came back in, corrected that statement because the initial statement that was made is that an unknown person answered the door. Right. So opened a stranger was in the house. Oh. So... In in Politico, particularly, we're criticizing Republicans, and they covered the same story. So in their own story, they wrote that an unnamed person, they didn't say an unnamed third person, it was an unnamed person. And then when they walked in, they saw Pelosi and the dude. Struggling. Well, it's not anyone's fault if they think that an unnamed person answering the door would be a third person yes. in the house. Because you know who Paul Pelosi, that's right. not an unnamed. And the, uh, quote, attacker. And the attacker. So that's two. Right. So who's number three? So police are saying that they corrected the story. Okay, fine, corrected it. But it's not as if conservatives were going around. So this, and what I said yesterday, that Democrats were using this as an opportunity to, you know, midterm to say, oh, look at what Republicans. violence. But that's what Hillary was saying. Was You literally that's have. That's the trope. That's Politico criticizing Republicans for referencing what they included in their own article. They link to an article that says that it had been updated. How dare with, you say what I do? 
I mean, it is it's the craziest thing. And they say in the article, the original article had been has been updated with new information. So then how are people wrong for for assuming, okay, well, this doesn't sound right. Because if you say that an unnamed person answers the door and then you identify two other people, that means that there was a third person there. And it may not have been. We still don't know. And I don't I don't mean it, I don't think it matters that much who opened the door. Fortunately, the guy was, you know, they they were there um, apparently within two minutes. Now, it's weird because right. Jamal and I were talking, trying to figure out the security around it. So apparently, <laughs> we were under the assumption that maybe once he broke the glass, was that that triggered. Glass? Yeah, so there was broken glass um, that that triggered the alarm. But apparently, it didn't trigger the alarm. What happened is that so the guy found him upstairs. Um, the, the guy broke the into the house. Attacker comes in, finds him upstairs. Pelosi is wearing boxers and a kit, a t-shirt or something, as they were saying. It's two in the morning. So woke him up. Um, he wouldn't allow him to. There was no violence or anything that happened. But when once once they got up, they were going downstairs, and Pelosi tried to go to the elevator to use the phone because they have a a phone in the elevator. There's an elevator. Well, you saw pictures. It's a pretty big house. Yeah. And they're a little, you know, maybe a little well, hard for them they're older. going. They're older folks. Yeah. So he couldn't get to the elevator. So he blocked his access to the elevator. Somehow, Pelosi was able to convince him that he needed to use the restroom. He went to use the restroom. And that's when he called, called yeah, I'd heard 911. That. I read that. And then when, I think they said, within what kind like. kind of attacker allows you to say, time out. I know you're going to bludgeon me to death with this hammer. But I but need to go use. Let the me go pee. Let real me go quick. potty. Let me just let me just take a quick potty before you bludgeon me to death. But they said within three minutes, police had arrived. So it did, it wasn't a trigger. It wasn't the alarm wasn't triggered. Paul Pelosi actually right, called I, them. I did read that. But and I then something maybe. else that they said is that he referenced him as a friend. Right. The third person, the unnamed person, when the police asked, "Well, how did this guy get in?" And the third person said, because there is, let's be honest, there's a third person. Somebody opened the door. If Paul Pelosi was upstairs and it's a tall enough house that you need an elevator. How did they get in? The the attacker was let in and it was quoted in the police statement in the news, at least in California. And so local news. Did someone say a friend? Someone. That, yes. The, and I don't know if that was person, Paul Pelosi or that was supposed to be the third person. Well, the third person said a guy named David. But some, yeah. The guy they, knew they even, his name. Even knew his first name. And his friend David. My whole point in bringing all of this up, and yes, this is kind of, it's not like a big deal as far as like our geopolitical stuff that we typically talk about here. But if you unpack the story just a little bit, it's not, this isn't what we're doing here. This isn't conspiracy theory. No, we're just They're referencing facts. actual reports. Like, these things were reported by legitimate media outlets. So if you hear that people are, you know, floating conspiracy theories, understand that it wasn't created out of whole cloth. Like, this was... Right. It came from something. Right. Right now, we are just stating bits of factual information that not one mainstream media outlet is willing to piece together. There, One outlet will say, unnamed person. Another outlet will say um, no forced entry. Another, But no one will say it all together. Right. Because they're afraid of the image it paints. 
Now, we're not trying to paint an image. We're just stating all the bits of factoids. And it is weird. It's all it's Because all we, weird. we don't chase conspiracy theories. So, but it is just weird. And so it's not as if Elon Musk, so the idea right. that he deleted the tweet, I when I went back and I said, oh, well, he shouldn't have deleted it. Like, it was a valid thing that he was saying. To point out, I mean, he he literally, I saw the tweet. It said, it basically said, and I don't, I don't want to misquote him, so I'm going to paraphrase. But he basically, in effect, said to Hillary, just hold on here. Let's wait for all the facts to come. Mm-hmm. Because she was going full force, which is what the Democrats were doing. Republicans and, you know, political violence. She was going down that road. It is a crazy thing. And, and the, you know, it should be noted that, you know, lots of people, Republicans, they condemned this. Everyone should Everybody condemn. condemns violence. Right. Like, I mean, if, if you don't, you're a, you're a, a, a psychopath. Right? But to like, have a major outlet like Politico push this idea, because if you actually read, I mean, if you read the headline, uh, prominent conservatives share online disinformation about Paul Pelosi assault. No, disinformation would be <laughs> like he was at a gay pride Halloween party like, and bro, earlier in the night. Your like, outlet that's, reported that's it. That's not what we're saying. That's you reported not, it. Not what anybody said. Yeah. All people are saying is a third person let him in. The third person named him as a guy named David. Maybe he didn't know the last name of this attacker, but he knew his name was David. Yeah. Someone did. So somebody was, this door opener, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's like Jeeves, right? Like the butler or something. The butler let him in. The butler apparently, like, well, for... All and intents, it wouldn't be surprised, like, it wouldn't well, surprise no. me if they have a housekeeper all or something. In, for all intents and purposes, like yeah, for all intents and purposes, we'll say the butler opened the door. Don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's Paul Pelosi's cousin, brother, whatever. I don't know. But the butler opened the door. Yeah. And opened the door for his friend, David. So... I don't know. A lot of. But anyway, stuff. that that's an update on the story from yesterday. Well, there, we were trying to figure out why it didn't make sense. And you know what? And we, Robert Patillo is going to be joining us right after this break. Um, ask Robert. I, I want to ask Robert a question because I I had read in California that that the the jurisdiction in San Francisco that the the DA there was going to pursue. Um, uh, well, not only we know the DOJ said kidnapping, all the stuff that's mm-hmm. you know associated because he is the immediate, uh, the spouse Mm -hmm. of Nancy Pelosi. But I heard also, or I thought I read somewhere that the California jurisdiction was gonna pursue um, attempted Attempted murder murder. charges. Yeah. Well, they said that. Not yesterday, but they were saying this over the weekend that that's what they were gonna do. How do you know that was the intent? How do you know it wasn't just a struggle? I mean, because intent, murder, I mean, that's where we ask Bob Patillo, right? He's on on hold. We can ask him about it. We will take Bob. In just a minute after this break, sit tight. We'll be talking about all kinds of domestic news as well as picking his legal brain about uh, this Paul Pelosi stuff. So sit tight. Sit tight. You're listening to Fault, Li- Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am your guest co-host, Malik Abdul, here with Manila Chan. On the line, we have Robert, no, I should say the Robert Patillo. 
civil rights attorney, political commentator, part-time comedian, gun enthusiast, (laughs) and many other things that Robert Patillo is. Robert, are you there? I am here. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, we were talking about on the other side of the break, um, the Paul Pelosi story and Manila asked a question that I actually didn't know the answer to. And I said, well, maybe you will know. We got a lawyer. We, We have a lawyer. So what apparently they are pursuing attempted murder charges for the uh, attacker. attacker. How does that because I don't I don't know if it's different in California versus in other places, but with the attempted murder charge itself, like how does that work here? Like, do you proving Uh, intent? uh, Allow me to add to that, Bob. I mean, are there one? Are there differences in the two? I mean. Somehow there's federal charges because obviously he is the spouse of the House Speaker. Right. Of the Speaker of the House, right? So there's a federal charge coming out of the DOJ. And I believe there could there also be a California charge from the DA there. And I think it's the Californians that are pursuing the mur- attempted murder charge. But isn't oh, you mean that, it's not the that, not the feds who are pursuing the, the attempted murder? It's the California charge. It's the charge. state pursuing. Yeah, the state, yeah. Ah, so okay. You can have two at the same time, right? If you can answer that for us, number one and number two, isn't it really difficult to prove the intent for attempted murder? Okay, luckily these are all your uh, wonderful first year law school questions to get in uh, crim law, <laughs> and and so one yes, both state level charges and federal charges. Think about it. Uh, and the police shooting contest where you'll have uh, state-level charges uh, for the actual murder, for the killing of the individual, but then also federal charges for violations of their civil rights uh, or federal hate crimes charges uh, that would be divergent. So I believe in this case, the uh, federal government is charging him for the conspiracy to commit harm against uh, the Speaker of the House's husband and the various other federal charges they are. But on those local charges, the district attorney will be able to charge him with the attempt to murder, aggravated assault, breaking and entering, uh, and a whole litany of state-level charges. Now, with regards to showing intent, uh, one, the DA can charge with whatever they want to. They can, you know, uh, the grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, so they can charge it with murder, uh, you know, piracy, whatever they, uh, whatever they feel like. But when it comes to proving intent, the intent is proven uh, by uh, uh, by looking at the actions of what the reasonable. A uh, uh, reasonable person would uh, believe the uh, an outcome could be. So it's not that you have to do this dive into the person's psyche and figure out what they did. But if you're saying did you uh, you broke into somebody's house, you had zip ties, and you hit them in the head with a hammer, was it would a logical and reasonable person believe that this could lead to the death of another? And that's how you get your attempted murder charges. So I, I, it's not so much you have to you know, kind of uh, prove intent in this case, the mens rea element. You just have to prove that the actions they took was uh, could be reasonably calculated to cause the death of another. I believe hitting somebody in the head with a hammer uh, would qualify for that. You know what? And you just made me think of something. It, it just clicked um, when you were talking about how you don't have to prove intent. Because remember, the guy who showed up at Kavanaugh's house, he was charged— with attempted murder. But he 
admitted to the cops. He's like, the cops were like, what are you doing outside of Justice Kavanaugh's house in the middle of the night? He's like, I'm here to kill Justice Kavanaugh. Yeah, but I think it's like if we talk about an actual violent act, which is what happened in Paul Pelosi's act, like the guy never acted right. he just on it. Said, he just he said, said his intent. He said his intent. Yeah. And so that two robbers point about intent. I mean, I, I didn't even think about that until just now that, yeah, that will guy they, actually. Bob, will they have to prove like whose hammer that it like it did? Did David DePape bring the hammer? Did Mr. Pelosi have the hammer? Like, does that oh, will matter? that even matter? No, that that, that wouldn't matter. Uh, what matters is the person was uh, one that didn't have any justification. So if you wasn't, if you weren't acting in self defense, if you weren't uh, acting in defense of another, uh, and you were in a place you weren't supposed to be, you had did a violent act against the individual. That's what has to be proven. So. Let's say that it was Mr. Pelosi's hammer, that he grabbed the hammer to protect himself. Him being an old man, he was overpowered. He grabbed his, uh, the Mr. DePage, grabbed his hammer and hit him across the head with it. That's attempted murder. So it's not, uh, uh, the, the question of who brought the hammer to the fight uh, is less important than the person who broke it in or and then used that to assault another individual in a way that was reasonably calculated to cause the death of another. you got to love how law school books are written. Oh, wow. Okay. Good point. Good point. Well, thanks for that clarity. That's why we have right. you on, Mr. Thank you Attorney. For, for Law School 101. <laughs> Thank you. Now, l- let's go on. I don't know if this is Law School 201, <laughs> but the Supreme Court, obviously, we know the affirmative, the big affirmative action case is now before the Supreme Court. And on yesterday, they heard the oral arguments. Uh, Katanji Brown B- B- Jackson came out swinging, asking asking a lot of pointed questions. You can kind of see, if you go back and look at some of the debate, you can see the wheels kind of churning both on the conservative and the um, liberal side. But one of the things that, as I was digging into it and I was hearing the actual case, uh, one of the things that I was surprised by is... Well, I won't say that I was surprised by walking away. I, I I had to ask myself about the fairness of it. So essentially what's happening here is that Asian Americans are alleging that the Harvard University's um, admission process discriminates against Asian Americans. Why do they say that? Well, not and I don't want to focus on not necessarily why do they say that, but the evidence that was actually presented, something that actually surprised me. So apparently, Harvard University has a different standard. Well, they have different standards for African Americans and Hispanics versus white and Asian Americans. So, for instance, uh, the SAT score, um, the PSAT score, in order to be invited for to Harvard for African Americans and Hispanics. It is 1,100 and up. For Asian Americans, it is, I'm sorry, for white and Asian Americans, it is 1,310 and up. So that's one of the arguments that Asians are using, that they're being treated unfairly. Different standard. Yeah, they're being, and and essentially they're being held to, you know, the quote-unquote white standard. A higher, a higher standard. A higher standard than other minorities. Well, the fact that it's just different than others. Right. Period. That's well, like, I think that the, so that the the Supreme Court actually has they, they in a sense have co-signed um, using race as a factor in college admissions, but not purely. But but what they're arguing here, what the Asian Americans are arguing, is that the systems that they have in place. So, for instance, the SAT 
um, scores. But also there's this, um, in, in consideration, they call these personality tests. Uh, yeah. So while, you know, you may score high in one area, you may score lower on the personality test, but they, the Asian Americans are arguing that even that is weighted against them, like heavily right. against them. So, Robert, first of all, just give me your overall take of, you know, I don't know if, well, this is a silly question. Um, I was going to say, I don't know if you had time to watch any of it yesterday, but of course you did. You're a geek. You're a nerd. <laughs> uh, so, of course, you watch but some we love of it. you, Bob. Yes. But just, um, first of all, give me your take on the um, oral arguments on yesterday. Well, one, yes, I did watch it. Uh, two, uh, this is very much a fait accompli in that the oral arguments are in large part uh, window dressing. They are uh, about making the case to the public and to the media and to your own individual basis uh, about something where we know what the final outcome is going to be. This is showing itself to be a very activist conservative court. Uh, so, of course, they are going to overturn the uh, affirmative action uh, probably on a party-line three vote, uh, so to say. So mo- most of this, these oral arguments are simply about making sure the public uh, understands the reasoning of the justices and also to lay the groundwork for the, uh, for the progressive judges so that if one day they do get a majority back, they can cite the dissent written probably by uh, Justice Jackson in this case. Uh, as the uh, 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 as the precedents needed to justify overturning this at some point long into the future. So that's uh, one. Secondarily, if you look at the standards laid out, this is the the, the plaintiffs in the case are very, very much using the closed the door behind the argument, uh, in that they admit that Asian Americans were uh, initially benefited from these same programs that helped to diversify schools by uh, not simply going by legacy uh, admissions, as was the case for hundreds of years at Ivy League schools, by not simply going uh, for whoever can pay the most money to get you in to happen for centuries at Ivy League schools. I think Jared Kushner's dad bought a building or something to get him into Harvard, even though his scores did not uh, make it. Uh, But now that Asian Americans have become so uh, successful academically, that now they want to close the door to the rest of the minorities who are trying to come in behind them. That's uh, uh, the, the summation of it. Uh, and I think that if you look at Ginsburg's uh, ruling on this in the Michigan uh, affirmative action case from oh, 15 years ago now, probably more than that, uh, the uh, her and Sandra O'Connor argue that uh, – in addition to your hard scores, you have to look at other factors when it comes to admissions, because otherwise you end up with a result of it simply being a legacy over legacy and being an option to get into these schools. And this could include socioeconomic background, life experiences, uh, how your diverse background can contribute to the educational enrichment of the university. Uh, and the the argument is now being made that none of those things matter. It should just be the hard test scores on paper. Uh, and I think that leads to deleterious results. So I I think schools have been preparing for this decision um, for the last several years, that many schools are already putting in place their own policies that are meant to circumvent what they believe the uh, majority decision will be. And that we will see a, a, we'll have to monitor over the next several years what diversity looks like in many of these Ivy League and larger institutions to find out if without a legal mandate forcing them to do so, uh, if we do return to the days where uh, you, oh, your name is Biden, your grandfather's name was Biden, your grandfather's name was Biden, 
grandfather's name is Biden, you can come on to the school uh, versus being able to open it up to more individuals so we can uh, no longer put such an emphasis on these uh, institutions which only perpetuate a kind of the heretical system of uh, dominance. If you look at the Supreme Court right now, everybody went to an Ivy League school kind of puts you on the fast track to a prosperity in America, then people are, for some reason now, don't want that door open to more individuals. So, Barbara, just, so what, what do you make of the idea, or, or how do you explain Asians being treated differently as far as from other minorities, like African Americans and Hispanics? What, what, from just your perspective, what explains from how, from, I guess, a legal perspective, or at least uh, as far as admissions perspective, how Asians and Americans are in the same box with white Americans than they are from minorities, wait, even though Asians are minorities? Wait, wait, before, before you go there, Bob, let me, let me weigh in with some personal experience on this. So I was applying to universities in 1998 when affirmative action was going through the whole thing and becoming, you know, the, the, the law of the land, right? And I'm from a disadvantaged, you know, minority uh, minor, minority group. Um, not all Asians are equal. I grew up in a largely like 80-something percent Mexican community in Los Angeles. My parents are immigrants. I'm the first American born in this country for my family, right? And I'll just say, in 1998, applying to colleges and... I had fantastic, fantastic PSAT, fantastic SAT scores. I had a great GPA. I did all of the, the right things, right? I was, I was a thespian. I was a cheerleader. I was class president. I was everything like above and beyond. Then my, one of my academic, um, he's my friend in real, I mean, we're friends, but we were also academic nemeses. And he's Latino. He's Mexican. And we were, very, you know, academically, our resumes looked about the same. Very, very similar. He's, you know, a star baseball player. You know, similar, similar resumes. I beat him in the S our SAT scores. We applied to the same university. He's Latino. He got in. I didn't. I didn't. And I remember they... They interviewed us they, separately. We both were both very excited. You know, we're juniors at the time. We're very excited about this. And I have way more personality. Let's be honest. Like, <laughs> but he got in. And they effectively told me, basically, my takeaway, and I remember this from, you know, what, what was it, 27 years ago, 26 years ago. Math is not my strong suit. Um, but they effectively told me, there's a lot of you here already. Not a lot of him here. And I remember being so burned, I was infuriated. That was my personal experience with affirmative action. Now, on the flip side, as an adult, I, you know, while I felt burned by it, I also understand, I understand both sides. Like where, to Bob's point, the legacy kids at Harvard and what have you, that should be all done away with, right? I get that. But I thought this country was supposed to be a meritocracy. That, that you can come from nothing and make something of yourself if you really, really try. I mean, doesn't affirmative action take that away, Bob? 
<laughs> no, and, and this is why, because uh, when we look at the numbers, and uh, this is the hard part about it, because what universities were attempting to do through the um, progeny that led to the uh, Michigan uh, Law School case is trying to correct the course. So if something's going one direction, uh, trying to turn that ship around often is very difficult. The difficult decisions have to be made, and lines have to be placed somewhere. You uh, And at the end of the day, you have to find some criteria to separate individuals. Um, and, and despite the fact that some individuals end up not getting into the school of their choice, I, I think that by opening it up to more people, by opening up the socioeconomic ladder, the racial ladder, uh, the, uh, uh, the regional ladder, for example, uh, where I grew up in the, you know, in the South in Georgia, uh, it was very difficult for students to get into Ivy League schools, regardless of your scores, because there was a regional bias, for example. So this is why they set up uh, this conceptualization of having a multitude of factors that are weighed in, uh, both the hard factors and the uh, uh, unhard factors, the uh, educational factors, as well as the social and um, uh, and political and the regional factors, to have a more diverse uh, school system or uh, university, because what the, that diversity ends up strengthening the educational attainment of all people. Imagine uh, coming out of one of these Ivy League schools and never having dealt with Southeast Asians, for Example and never have had a conversation with them. How that colors your view of things going forward and your uh, your leadership uh, going forward into the corporate world or the governmental world. Uh, so, despite the fact that lines have to be made and cuts have to happen, I believe that all, we have enough university capacity in this country that everyone will be able to get into an institution of equivalent um, if the scores uh, so dictated, the other factors so dictated, and that the net gain and the net positive of diversity and affirmative action can't be denied. Look at corporate boards of directors now versus the 1970s. Uh, look at uh, um, uh, educational institution faculties from the 1960s versus today. Um, the uh, the differences could not be more stark. I think the more that we can open up uh, those doorways that lead us to prosperity, uh, the better the uh, societal outcomes end up being. So, Robert, I just, so what my, what I'm trying to draw out is I'm trying to reconcile in my head how or why Asian Americans are treated as a different minority. Because here, we're at Harvard University, I mean, it's clear, they're they're on the same plane we got lumped in, as white Americans. We got lumped in with so whites. how is it that, you know, I, I'm still not understanding the justification for why Asian Americans specifically, because would the same policies be in place, or would, um, you know, even though this is particularly about African Americans as Hispanics, I'm pretty sure that that same sort of um, admission, you know, waiver, or well, not waiver, that's not what I'm looking for, um, would apply to Native Americans. Um, how is it that Asian Americans specifically are carved out. And I'll mention some stats that they gave. Um, when talking about comparing the Asian Americans applicants, their chance at actually getting accepted into Harvard. Asian Americans, 25%. White Americans, 35%. Hispanic Americans, 75%. And African Americans, 95%. 
I'm trying to just justify these numbers. I think we all um, can agree that diversity is important. Diversity in our academia, diversity in the workroom, diversity in our politics. All of these things are important. And keep in mind, the largest beneficiary of affirmative action programs have been white women who are a, um, they're not a minority, they're an underrepresented minority. So women aren't like a minority group in the country. They're just underrepresented. So how is it, why do you think that Asian Americans are treated differently from other minorities? Well, this is what you laid out in the university's um, a brief um, in this case in front of the Supreme Court currently, uh, because Asian Americans have in many ways been victims of their own success, oddly enough. Uh, and it's not even the blanket Asian Americans, because uh, often they is a separated out between um, Ali Wong, because the Asian American comedian has a joke where she says, I'm a mixture between uh, Japanese being fancy Asian, and she calls it, and also Filipino. You know, what she calls a jungle agent. Asian. And the reason I say that that applies... No, she's Vietnamese and Chinese. So the Chinese are the fancy Asians and the Vietnamese are the jungle Asians. There you go. You, 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 you've heard it. Yes. So the, Love Alley. Absolutely. So the point being that uh, universities actually some, uh, sometimes break it out all the way down to that level where Japanese, Chinese, and Korean students are treated differently than Cambodian, Laotian, Thai, Vietnamese, Filipino, Malaysian students because uh, at the, because what they're trying to do is uh, integrate more individuals who have not historically been represented. Um, Northern Asians, such as Chinese, Vietnamese, or, or sorry, Chinese, Japanese, uh, Koreans, um, have been overrepresented because of the success they have had. And thus they uh, end up statistically being treated the same as white students because they had an overabundance of those students. And that's why you uh, you see the divergence because they're going by the statistical data that has shown an overrepresentation of some groups, of some minority groups, but also an underrepresentation of other minority groups that are trying to integrate more into um, the university setting. Well, I mean, some people have brought up you know, the, the, the whole point of the newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson herself, is that when President Biden was looking for the next nominee, he specified that he was going to pick not only a woman, but specifically not a, a woman of color, of any color, could have been Native American, could have been Asian. He specifically said, I'm going to pick a black woman. So that was it, and and I criticize him, and I know many people criticize. So that was a bad move on the Biden on the Biden administration's part. Um, whether we like it or not, in America, we respond to race differently I than mean, we do. Doesn't that take away her credibility? I mean, to to say yeah, no. So I, I think I think he I'm made an her error because of her skin color. I, I think he made an error, but that's why I made the point that I think we handle race differently than we do gender. When Donald Trump said Donald Trump said that he was specifically nominate a woman to the Supreme Court. Specifically, he specified a woman. He didn't say black or white right. or whatever. We were okay with that. Right. When Joe Biden specified black. I'm going to take a black woman right. to the and, Supreme Court. And so Court. I think superimposing race over all else was the problem for Joe Biden. But I acknowledge that when Donald Trump said he was appoint a woman, not a man, he excluded all men and said that he would appoint a woman. That's what he did, and there was very little pushback. Well, you left because the pool is bigger, is broad. It, when it you was say open just to woman. everyone, right? So I do think that Biden made an error because she's well qualified. First of all, you don't get to the um, the Court of Appeals 
by not being right. qualified. By I being mean, a loser. You get there because but you're qualified. He, he diminishes her qualifications. No, he did. I agree with that. He undercut her. Yeah. He could have just said a woman. Yeah. I left it at that. What do you think, Bob? Uh, well, I've, I've always been in the speak softly and carry a big stick uh, category of, oh, you ain't got to have an ounce. You just guilt, go ahead. <laughs> but I, I don't quite understand kind of the the hyperventilation that has uh, come from parts of the uh, the American zeitgeist when it comes to this idea. Like, oh, my God, he picked the black woman. They make it like he picked Judge Maybelline uh, from, <laughs> you know, the, the, he put Cardi B on the court or something. This is a well-qualified woman who was already a federal judge with more litigation experience than pretty much the entirety uh, of the benches currently exist. I, I think more conversations would be about the fact that she's a public defender um, previously in life and putting that experience and that viewpoint uh, on the court as opposed to, you know, just Harvard professors who have spent their entire lives in academia. Uh, I, I, I think that you could have avoided a lot of controversy by not announcing and telegraphing it. Um, just as we talk about what college admission as it was before, just pretend everybody else had a chance, even though you knew where you were going at the end of the day. Uh, may have made it uh, easier. But I think at the, uh, at the end of the day, Joe Biden was trying to appeal particularly to African-American women and trying to get them to turn out in 2020 by telegraphing that he'd have a black female vice president, black female Supreme Court justice, uh, black female secretary to the United Nations, black female uh, press secretary, black female Email on the Federal Reserve that he was going to make sure that he was rewarding black girl magic. So it was a- you know what, Robert? I cannot wait until next week until we talk to you because we're going to have to talk to you after Tuesday oh, because boy. I'm going to, I can't wait to see how that black girl magic turned out for Joe Biden. <laughs> um, for the <laughs> Democrats? For the Democrats. I cannot, all of the work that he did because to his credit, he catered. He had Kamala Harris, Katanji Brown Jackson. He had the whole lot. It was black girl magic all the time. But I'll be interesting to see how black women turn out. Um, for the Dems. For the Dems. I think I think they are. They're still going to get high numbers. But obviously, we're looking at a, um, you know, a, a loss for the Dems. But Robert Patillo, thank you so much, brother. Thank you for joining us. We're going to have to have you back to talk more. And actually... As probably some more about the Supreme Court, too. But thank you for joining us this hour. We have completed our first hour and we are coming up on the second. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C., good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us in the Rumble Room. Hello to our rumblers out there, 105.5 FM and 1390 in the D.C. Metro. We're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 on your radio dial. I am the Durag conservative, the atomic MAGA conservative. In studio with my lovely co-host, glad to have her back, the V's, oh, oh. the vixen of Veritas. I'm getting those V's wrong getting here. Getting women, getting your minority <laughs> getting women. Getting my minority <laughs> women wrong. <laughs> the thriller in Manila is back, Manila Chan. This is the show that dares to go there. You are listening to Fault Line. 
My V's. My V's. I'm getting my V's all wrong Vixen. here. I'm Vixen getting a Veritas. Vixen of Veritas. I'm getting it wrong. But the thriller in Manila. I, I, I should have just stuck with the thriller in Manila. But no, it was great having um, Robert on to kind of unpack that. You know, we talked All about the, the Supreme Court. Stuff. We talked about Pelosi. And he explained something. Now I understand attempted murder. And like the federal charge versus the state charges. And and as far as the death, I don't think anyone's seeking the death penalty on this guy. I think they want to, mm-hmm. but I don't think they can. Yeah. But I think they would, if... If the Democrats had their druthers, I think they would love to see this guy fry, right? To set precedent of like, how dare you touch, you know, any one well, of Well, clearly us. something is mental with the guy. They showed a picture. He apparently lives in a in a bus with outside a, of a ha- like a group, yeah, ha- not an official group house, by the right. way. Right, it's not. It's some. It's like this drugs. crazy lady drug yes. house. How she affords it, I don't know. But she's like a nudist colony leader. Right. And so he lives in the bus, you know, gay flag in the front, Black Lives Matter flag right. in the back. Rainbow flag. It's got Buried. weed all over it on the rain. Yeah. It's a rainbow weed flag. Yeah. The the guy is just the, totally the group, out to lunch. The group is, yeah. The, yeah. So I, it'll uh, be interesting to see what charges they actually follow because he's mental. He's, he's not. The, he's I nuts. think the, the argument, the, the focus here should not be, it's not a political thing. Right. This guy, for years according to the neighbors obviously very left leaning everybody the neighbors have all said it the main this is local media but again I'm a Californian so I know all the sources to look at in local media there all the local press knows from the neighbors this dude is a leftist he makes handmade jewelry he makes hemp jewelry how many conservative super mega righties are hemp handmade jewelry makers well, I don't like, have my bracelets on today, well, but I do make bracelets. So, well, well, so I, I will say that. Man. But no, this but, guy, he's a looney tune. And I mean, he's just a... He's a, it's a drug house. It's a drug yeah, den. People come and go. And as Michael Schellenberger, the guy that was running against Gavin Newsom, as he noted, this case should highlight the, the inexorable problem in California is that we have a mental health crisis and a drug crisis in San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, apparently the guy for some time thought he was Jesus. Yes. So there you go. It's, yeah. I I don't think this is a political, this is a political hit. Yeah. No pun intended. This is somebody who's really crazy. There have been instances where, you know, it was political in the sense that I like, I hate you because you're a Democrat or Republican or whatever. This This doesn't seem like, this is is like crazy. This is cuckoo. Yep. Let's get to some news. Um, our main story of the day. Speaking at a press conference in Sochi with the leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan, following trilateral talks aimed at restoring peace in Caucasus, Russian President Vladimir Putin said that Ukrainian forces had endangered cargo ships carrying grain through a humanitarian corridor set up by Russian forces to allow their passage near the conflict zone. Quoting, these drones, both underwater and aerial, they partially traveled in the corridor along which grain is exported from Ukraine. And in this way, they created a threat both to our ships, which should ensure the safety of grain export and to civilian ships that are engaged in this. And we have pledged to ensure this security, but if, pardon me for the expression, Ukraine strikes these ships, we will be guilty. 
just like everyone else is now blathering on about Russia, what Russia is doing, not remembering what caused it, but it is caused by creating a threat to this humanitarian corridor, Putin added. In domestic news, we were talking about some more information. The suspect arrest, arrested in connection with an attack on Paul Pelosi, husband of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is facing federal assault and attempted kidnapping charges for his alleged role in the incident, the Justice Department said on Monday. DePape is charged with one count of assault of an immediate family member of a U.S. official with the intent to retaliate against the official on account of the performance of official duties. A lot of officials in there. DePape is also charged with one count of attempted kidnapping of a United States official on account of the performance of official duties. The Justice Department said this in a statement. The first charge carries a maximum sentence of 30 years in prison and the second charge a maximum of 20 years in prison. So imagine what will happen if they tack on those state charges, which seem to be attempted murder charges. So he's going to be in there for a while. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has filed an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court asking them to block the release of his tax documents to a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives committee, the document said on Monday. Quoting, this case raises important questions about the separation of powers that will affect every future president. The appeal said the only way to preserve these certiori worthy questions and avoid causing applicants irreparable harm is for this court to grant an administrative stay by Wednesday, November 2nd. The Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled to allow the release of the IRS documents pertaining to Trump to go into effect on October 3rd. We should have asked Robert Pertillo how to pronounce Sir Tio Rory. Maybe, maybe that's it. Next time he's on, I'm going to have to ask him. Sir Tio Rory questions. Doesn't sound right. But hey, moving on in more domestic news. In mid-October, U.S. President Joe Biden expressed concerns that Republicans could jeopardize future aid for Ukraine after current House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy vowed to cease writing blank checks to Kiev if the Republicans get the majority in the lower chamber of Congress after the upcoming midterm elections. According to the U.S. media, a rare split has emerged within the Republican Party, which is likely to escalate into a more open battle if the party gains control of Congress and faces forceful requests from Biden and emotional appeals from Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky. A division within the Republicans presents a challenge for Biden, who has been working to hold together a domestic and global coalition to support Ukraine amid the rising food and gas prices as well as global hunger crisis. This is according to reports. Yes, Biden should be concerned that Republicans have every intention on stopping the runny faucet of funds going to Ukraine. Do I believe that Republicans will stop funds altogether? Absolutely not. But I do believe since Congress, particularly the House, controls the purse strings, they're going to pull back some of that funding um, that we've been, some of those billions that we've been sending over to Ukraine. 
More domestic news, a diesel supply alert has been issued on the U.S. East Coast. With Mansfield Energy, a leader in petroleum marketing and fuel supply, describing the current markets as rapidly devolving. Quoting, markets are now seeing extremely high prices in the Northeast Corridor, along with supply outages along the Southeast, the warning issued by the fuel logistics company. The alert in the memo was extended to states including North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and Maryland. As it is issued, it's advisory to, to businesses that rely on diesel, Mansfield Energy underscored that while typically the East Coast markets have 50 million barrels in storage, there are less than 25 million barrels available currently. And news, unfortunate news, talking about the crime wave that has been sweeping across America, we go to Chicago, which has, in many ways, been ground zero for violence. Fourteen people, including three minors, were injured in a shooting during Halloween festivities in the U.S. city of Chicago, local police said in the early hours on Tuesday. The incident occurred at about 9.30 p.m. on Monday when unidentified assailants opened fire from a car at a group of people gathered in a popular place. The shooting lasted for a few seconds, preliminary data showing that there were two shooters. Quoting the, the Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown, we have reported at least up to 14 people shot. They are all in various conditions between critical and life and non-threatening, non-life-threatening. We also have a person struck by a vehicle at the scene as well. Brown specified that among the those who were actually shot, other victims rather, they are minors aged 3, 11, and 13. So sad, so sad, so sad. And this is why across the country, crime has raised, has ranked now in the top three of issues that Americans are concerned about. So Democrats have a problem on their hands. In international news, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakrava wants answers regarding the mysterious It's Done iPhone message allegedly sent by then-Prime Minister Liz Truss to the U.S. Secretary of State moments after the sabotage attacks against the Nord Stream network in late September. Quoting, To be honest, I don't care who got this information and how. I'm interested in London's answer to the following question. Did Prime Minister Liz Truss of Britain send a message to the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken immediately after the Nord Stream gas pipeline was blown up with the was blown up with the words "It's done." Zakharova said, asked in a Telegram post on Tuesday. The spokeswoman also suggested that millions of people around the world were waiting for answers to the question on how the planet's energy security was undermined and what role the Anglo-Saxons played in this terrorist attack. More international news, U.S. President Joe Biden. The man raised his voice at Volodymyr Zelensky. I wonder what does that sound like? Biden raising his voice. I wonder what does that sound like? I don't know that he has like a volume button. <laughs> right, I, I really wonder what that sounds like. I think it's Come broken. on, man. Oh, man. <laughs> 
You want more? Come on, man. Yeah, but apparently during a phone conversation with the Ukrainian president, as he was asking for additional aid, Sources told U.S. media the report suggested that right after Biden confirmed he had approved a $1 billion aid package, Zelensky started listing all the help he needed but was not receiving. This infuriated Biden, who raised his voice to reprimand Zelensky, saying the Ukrainian leader could show a little more gratitude. He's calling this man ungrateful. The report also suggested that the relations between the two presidents only got better after Kiev went into damage control mode, with Zelensky praising the U.S. for its generosity in weapons deliveries and financial aid. This is a monster that Joe Biden himself created. You did this. More. Little tech news. World richest man Elon Musk will now ask... As the new CEO of Twitter, the American business tycoon said in a filing on the New York Stock Exchange on Monday. Musk's reign as the new owner of Twitter began last week and immediately after taking charge, he gave him the sack. Two previous bosses, Parag Agrawal and other top executives of the San Francisco-based company. On this day in history, 1894, Vaccine for diphtheria announced by Dr. Emile Roux of Paris. In 1916, Paul Milyukov, did I get that right, Manila? Milyukov, Milyukov, delivers in the Russian state Duma the famous stupidity or treason speech, precipitating the downfall of the Boris Sturma government. In 1952, Ivy Mike. The first thermonuclear weapon to utilize the H-bomb design of Edward Tuller and Stan Stanislaw Ulam is detonated in the Marshall Islands Pacific Ocean. And finally, in 2012, scientists detect evidence of light from the universe's first stars predicted to have formed 500 million years ago after the Big Bang. And I'm not talking about the series. These are your headlines for today, November 1st. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right. Yep. I I didn't go through all of the headlines. There were so many. I did not go through all of the headlines, but that, you know, we, we, we talked about that Biden story. That is, I can't wait to talk to Mark about that, though. Like, dude. At the 9 o'clock hour. Dude, you're going to yell at him? You're yelling at him now? Like, it's. It's it's really like creating a bratty child. And and how is it that Biden doesn't think? Yeah, of course, Republicans are using this are are um gonna at least talk about turning off the spigot to Ukraine. Of course. Yeah. Um. Have you seen the economy, Mr. Biden? And have you seen what the American people have said? It's and this is actually a bipartisan thing. Democrats and Republicans are saying, hey, you know, student loan cancellation, we're sending billions over to Ukraine, and we can only Can we get- afford all this? Yeah. Well, I and- mean, we're, they're not listening to the regular people, much less— I mean, they're not listening to the folks on the Hill, much less the regular American people, so, nope. you know. And $30 trillion debt. Just, we talked about it last. $30 I mean, trillion. Look outside dollars. of the window, Mr. President. Look out the window. So, all right. With that, let's let's go to our break, and then we're going to go over to 
The man that's living a hard life right now, reporting out of Brazil. Jamaral Thomas is going to join us right after this break. Sit tight. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Manila Chan. Joined with Malik Abdul. We're going to be bringing in the co-host of Fault Lines, who's living the tough life out on the beaches of Rio. Our friend Jamaral Thomas is out there covering the, I don't know if it was a surprise. I think it's a surprise election. I'll say the results was that Lula did beat the incumbent, but not by— It was by, only so close. But not That's by the surprise. as much. Yeah, right. not by as much as people were expecting, because early on, he was leading in the polls by double, like well into the double digits. We're talking 11, 12, 13 percent. Um, but Lula da Silva did win in this runoff uh, race on Sunday. Jamal Thomas is out there in Rio for us. JT, uh, first, let's talk about what— have you seen any of these, like, apparently it's like trucker protests? Or are they blocking the roads? What's happening? So I haven't seen it in Rio, um, but it is in Sao Paulo. Well, actually, it's supposed to be all over. And so right here, it says pro-Bolsonaro lorry drivers. It basically started setting up roadblocks across the country. Um, and this happened Monday night. Uh, oh, can you guys hear me okay? But this started Monday. This started immediately after the election. There were 342 incidents uh, with the biggest protests taking place in the South. And some of these blockages were basically blocking food, meaning they were like literally blocking supplies and food, getting from point A um, to point B. In other cases, people were setting fires. Um, lorry drivers apparently are pro-Bolsonaro, and I guess that's obvious at this point. Lorry, right? So truck, truck, tr- truckers. And this is the Electoral Supreme Court, the person in charge, the president, Alexander Mortis, on Monday basically ordered the police to get rid of the roadblocks, basically saying, if you don't, they will be a fine for 100,000 Brazilian reels, about $20,000 an hour for not doing so. Now, if you remember, when the election was taking place, he did the same thing with the federal police, basically saying, cut it out. Allow those people to get to the voting locations um, or else you will be charged. Same amount, about $20,000 an hour until you comply and until you do so. And so, and not to mention, they was going to arrest the head of that Savini. Um, so right now, I'm unclear on how fast those roadblocks are being removed. I mean, this was something that basically came out today. There's other reports out by um, guests of the show, actually, friend of the show, who made the point of saying that the police, in some cases, are help facilitating these protests. Because keep in mind, when the election was taking place, the head of the police was pro-Bolsonaro. Head of the police basically had his people basically creating roadblocks, despite the fact that the Superior Court told them not to do so. Meaning the electoral superior court basically said, don't do that. That is not allowed. They did it anyway. So we're going to see how that works out today. I mean, all things being equal, all of the stuff started Monday, precipitated into Monday. And so whether those roadblocks and everything else are going to last, we're going to see. Not to mention, it's super weird that the head of the police is basically backing Bolsonaro. And I suppose on some level, maybe turning a blind eye to this stuff. But we'll see. I mean, at this point, the court has gotten involved and the court is like, cut it. So, Jamal, what is your, are you hearing anything from Bolsonaro yet? No, nothing from Bolsonaro yet. He is completely silent. It is super weird. I mean, Lula even made the point of saying, under normal circumstances, the person would have called me by now in order to capitulate. Right here. Anywhere else in the world, the president who would have lost would have called me now and conceded. 
And he basically told supporters on Monday, explaining he was part happy and part worried about the transfer of power. He still hasn't called. I don't know if he will. I don't know if he will concede. The electoral president, uh, Alexander Morris, the guy who basically threatened <laughs> the head of the um, highway police and at this point the protesters, he basically called Lula and validated the election, telling him, you know, congratulations, you won this particular election, et cetera. So the question really boils down to what is Bolsonaro going to do? He was supposed to come out yesterday. At least that was the reporting that he was supposed to come out, give a speech yesterday. Whether that was going to be a concession or not, who knows? But he was supposed to at the very least give a statement. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. And so they saw him going from point A to point B, basically going to his office. There were no comments. There were no statements. Completely silent. Now, beforehand, Bolsonaro made the point of saying only God can remove me from this office. All right. God in the Electoral Supreme Court, I suppose. Because what the experts are basically saying is that, look, it doesn't really matter what Bolsonaro do. He can comp- complain. He can moan. He can kick his heels. He can do any of that. All things being equal, the electoral court itself is the one that has control and power over who decides who wins that race. And so if he doesn't want to show up to the concession speech, fair enough. If he doesn't want to give a concession, again, fair enough. They are saying legally it's not going to matter. But the issue isn't legal, right? I mean, that's not the issue. The issue is what happens from the standpoint of the population. I mean, do those truckers leave? There's a question. Do they accept the fines? And, you know, be belligerent about it. Do three-fourths of his supporters who believe that the race was fraudulent and all this other stuff just because Bolsonaro said so, do they start enacting violence? Do the protests get – it's that part. It's not so much the legalities of it. I mean, even Bolsonaro's people who were in, um, in political office who basically backed him at this point have already said, yeah, Lula won this. So he's the odd man out here, and he's politically isolated in a weird way. It's very weird. It's very strange. I mean, it's almost like you're in a fight with your girlfriend and she just gets very quiet. She doesn't say anything. You're like, oh, my God, she's going to smother me, and smother me in my sleep. It's that where it's like, OK, what is he doing and what is he thinking? But I got to be honest, at a certain point, it may not matter. I mean, if you think about what Trump did what, at two in the morning, I remember because I was up shocked. <laughs> like I was watching the election all the way through. Trump comes out at two in the morning, gives a speech about how much fraud, fraud, it was cheating, I was cheated, et cetera. He does that immediately, meaning he went out almost immediately to make his point and to make his case about fraud and election and all this other stuff. Bolsonaro hasn't said anything. He just went quiet. Radio silence. Super weird. So, Jamal, what do you, what are you hearing? What's the mood like? I know that, there. yes, we've talked about the protests and you said that they aren't protesting where you are. But what is the mood? Um, what is the yeah, yeah. What What is the mood down there? And another question to ask, and, you know, it, is there, how is the media, like, covering this? Forum, okay, let's go with the mood first. Immediately after the, the election, of course, people who are voting for um, Lula is static, is static, over the moon. My cab driver was blowing to everybody that he came around. They were like, yeah, you know, so it's very exciting. Um, my other cab driver one in Bolsonaro. Basically, say, oh, Lula's a criminal. He's going to destroy this country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can't let those dirtbag lefties back into the country. It was that stuff. And I was like, well, didn't he preside over? I was like, you really believe that? I mean, Bolsonaro was in power for what, four or five years? You don't, you know, he gets no responsibility for this? No, no responsibility at all. Okay, fair enough. Now, I am not going to disclose who I want in this race just because people are so divided in this and this is so contentious. Um, but I do want to elicit more information from various people I talk to, especially if they speak English. So the country is split. I mean, like the vote tally, 51, you know, basically 51, 50.9% to 49.1%. That is extremely close. 
Yeah, extremely close. And so you have the situation where there is a divided public. The people who are backing Lula, you saw him in Sao Paulo, happy, over the moon, static. By the same token, I don't feel any difference. Like, I don't feel this kind of um, political tension just in the way that you move through the country or the way that you talk to people and engage with people. Even when I was in Sao Paulo, I didn't necessarily feel it. But you can clearly see it when you're looking at the media and looking at the news. And you can see, like, the protests, the people who are rioting, the things that people are saying in the political space, especially up to the election. At this point, though, it seems to be a settled deal. Like, there seems to be – yes, there is ardent supporters, like the truckers or the police or whatever. But from the standpoint of the population, they seem to be accepting this. It doesn't seem to be this – you know, I don't see any riots. I don't see any, you know, burning down buildings and stuff like that. That didn't happen. So on some level, it feels settled. But again, this is how it feels just being here. Um, from the standpoint of the media, the media is interesting here. So it seems that the media is basically okay with this. Like, it doesn't seem like anybody wants this kind of fight over a transfer of power. Like, nobody wants this idea of a coup. Yes, some of the truckers were screaming, you know, to overthrow the government. Just coup it. Just coup it. You know, Brazil used to be ruled by military dictatorship. And so not everybody has basically accommodated this idea of democracy yet. So there's that. But all things been equal, it feels, or at the very least it seems, like the public is accepting this. Some may be resigned to accept it. Oh, he probably cheated, but okay, he's the president. Like that type of mindset. So we'll see. I mean, I think a lot of this is really going to depend on what Bolsonaro do. I mean, it's kind of like Trump. Trump has, what they say, if Trump shoots somebody in the middle of the street, he can still get away with it. If Bolsonaro comes out with a statement, yes, the political leaders may be against him. Yes, the various people who back him may also accept Lula. The question is, what does the population do? And that's the wild card in this. It's not about the political space. The political spaces seem to accept Lula. People all across the world, Putin called him, um, Biden called him. Everybody's basically saying, good job, you won. It was a free and fair election. Being sure to make that point, it was a free and fair election. Bolsonaro is politically isolated outside of the country, and he's politically isolated in the country. So the question becomes, what does he say? What does he do? Does he concede at all? Does he make a statement at all? Or does he just concede without saying anything? It's super weird. It's just very weird. Yeah, and it sounds very weird. And I'm wondering, based on what you just, just at least from your perspective on what the mood is like on the ground, and even from the media perspective, I'm wondering if it will matter at all. So if Bolsonaro comes out, you know, but if he comes out, like, let's say, in a very aggressive way and rejecting the election, will it have as much impact? Yeah, I don't think it will. I mean, because, like I said, it's one thing if, like, with the Republicans, Trump had, what, 100 senators ready to basically set themselves on fire for him. He had people in the House that were willing to set themselves on fire for him. He had a population that was like, yes, let's, let's do this. That's not here. Like, that's not what's present. He doesn't have these people willing to set themselves on fire for him. He could come out by himself and be belligerent all he wants. The best that he may have is a part of the crowd, meaning a part of the audience. Politically, it doesn't seem like anybody is on board for this idea of an overthrow of the government. It just doesn't seem there. This is not when Bolsonaro first ran. We had all of this clout and power. In fact, um, the president, again, Alexander Morris, president of the Electoral Court, he personally made the point of saying um, he didn't see much room in the election to be contested. Quote, the result has been proclaimed, accepted. And those who were elected will take office on January 1st. There was also a person who was in the um, president's office who made the point of saying, look, it doesn't really matter what Bolsonaro does at this point. I don't necessarily know if that's entirely true, because I think there's a there's a public effect, if not a political effect. But that basically, look, we want to confirm this 
officially. We're going to confirm it officially. But all things being equal, um, this is done. There's no room to challenge this. That's the point that they're making from the electoral court. That's what's coming out of the electoral court. Right here. He can kick and scream as much as he wants. Right here. Not acknowledging those result is a non-starter from the political point of view because at the end of the day, it's the electoral court that hands over power to the winner of the election. He can kick and scream all he wants. Basically, it's not going to matter. This was basically an expert who was talking about a legal expert um, that was discussing the case. And so, uh, like I said, and even in that statement by that political expert, what, notice what he said. Politically or legally, it doesn't matter. Ah, public is different. That's the catch. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm for the reason I want him to make a statement. When I was in Nepal once where the king of Nepal was being deposed, I didn't know. I wasn't in the politics. I just jumped into the country. I was going from country to country to country. And it just so happened I landed in a country where the king was basically deposed. The Congress or the parliament or whatever they have basically told the king, leave. The king ends up killing his brother, for one. And because the king killed his brother, he's now king. The brother was king at one point, killed the brother, he becomes king. So who's going to tell the king or accuse the king of basically murder? Nobody. <laughs> and so the king takes power. This now, like when the king takes power, stuff. Game of Thrones, right? Who's going to say that the king murdered the brother? Nobody. So the king basically loots the place, loots it. And when the country gets to the point of being sick of it, it can't tolerate it anymore, they say, it's time for you to leave. leave. And they gave him a mandate to leave. The king was quiet. It just went quiet. It, it, it is super weird. And everybody in the country, there was this tension that was palpable in the country of what is the king going to do? The ultimatum had been given. The deadline had been hit. What is the king going to do? The king didn't make a statement. The king didn't say anything. The king ultimately just left. And so I don't know if it's going to be like that here. I mean, I do, you know, people seem to just be going about their way. All things being equal. I mean, you know, it'd be like our country. If after January 6th, people still went about their way, they may be talked about it and everything else. But we'll see. I, he has to say something. Yeah. I refuse to believe that he goes all the way to January. January is when Lula takes power. It goes all the way to January without him making any comments to the press, any comments to the media, saying anything. That would be the most bizarre transition of power ever. JT, Trump, Trump didn't concede either, you know, and he didn't even show up. That's true. He didn't show up to, to the, inauguration. the inauguration at all. He just kind of snuck out quietly. He pouted, and, pouted all the yeah, way to Mar-a-Lago. All the way to <laughs> snuck on to, air, to uh, Marine One and just dropped, you know, dropped the mic out. I'm out. Didn't say anything. Yeah. So I don't know. That's not, I mean, if, if Bolsonaro is the Trump of the tropics, then we could probably expect a similar response during or at least the inauguration. Maybe, actually, maybe that's what we should be hoping for, that they they called, they compared him to Trump, so maybe we should be hoping that he goes out a little silently, you know, Quietly, January 6th aside, um, but he goes out and don't kind of g- encourage people to get out in the streets and protest. So maybe we can hope for that. JT, have you had a chance to talk to some of the locals? Like, are they, you know, and I don't mean the people out there protesting. And or, not the ones on the beach, Jamal. Yes. Yeah, Jamal. <laughs> Go to like a Actually, shopping those area. You should be talking to. No. Go out there. Talk to, talk to the grandma. Talk. Talk to the grandmas and grandpas out there at the shopping plazas. See, you know, are they excited to have? Um, obviously, he's Lula is a socialist leader. Are they excited to see this come back to their country? Many of the people, most of the people don't speak English. So there's there's a language divide. I've been trying to use my cell phone in order to communicate, but that's always stilted. Um, the people who I have spoke to that do speak English, it goes both ways. I mean, it's reflected in the vote where you get this kind of half and half. Where some people, oh, he's a Satanist, he's a communist, we can't have this country go back to this particular thing. 
But for the most part, people seem resigned. I mean, like the Lula supporters, of course, are over the moon. And you're going to have a sliver in the middle that are like, okay, whatever. It's the hardcore right wingers um, that are going to be the issue. I mean, like I said, the people I've talked to are split both ways. There have been some who have been completely Lula. I mean, one guy couldn't speak a lick of English. I understood Lula. I understood Lula. Even had the tag on his car. Another guy had it on his thing, meaning they wear these, it's almost like these stickers that show support for one or the other, in which case, Lula's case. So you can see people going down the street with the Lula sticker or people walking down the street on the beach with the Lula sticker on their chest with no shirt on. I was going to say on their butt, <laughs> on their butt next to their thong. They're just proudly walking on their chest with their perfect bodies, just yes. walking with Lula. That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying. Their bronze body, their bronze statue bodies walking around with Lula stickers on their bums. Just completely perfect. Just walking around with Lula. But, or right, on the bikinis with the, on their bums right there. That's their what I'm ass saying. But JT, I mean... Yeah, but it's it's very... It's it's a, such a divided thing now. It's, it's like our elections get contentious. Yes, yes. I was just going to go there. I was just going to go there is that, you know, despite these truckers, you know, blocking roads or what have you, have you seen any any sort of like political violence that people are talking about over here with the whole Pelosi debacle? Are people over there like worried, oh, someone might shoot Lula, someone might shoot Bolsonaro, someone might beat each other up because they're opposite voters? No, I haven't seen anything. Well, the beating up part, yes, especially after the election. There were street fights and stuff like that. Um, but those were, they seem to be limited, though. It wasn't something that kind of was like this riot that went across. It wasn't that. Um, there was worries about that, but necessarily seemed to happen. The truckers, like I said, somewhat seemed to be isolated. Yes, they're all over the country when they were setting up these roadblocks and protests. Apparently, they were even here. But they're not like in the thousands. You know what I mean? It's like, here's a hundred here, a pocket here. It's not so overbearing. But the truckers, they're blocking highways. So it is enough to block food or supplies, getting from point A to point B, or for that matter, block access to the airports. Um, but no, I haven't seen this upswell of violence. I haven't seen that. And I haven't seen anybody talking about assassinating Lula or anything else. The most that I've seen was somebody mentioned, like, some of the truckers for an overthrow of the government. Basically, don't allow Lula to take power. But again, that's isolated um, in regards to the section of society that they basically, you know, lean towards Bolsonaro. Apparently, Bolsonaro kept the prices down low for the lorry drivers, and so they basically support um, some of the taxi drivers. Apparently, that's another group. Mostly. I mean, again, half and half for me, from what I've seen on it. On the beach, I've seen many people with the Lula sticker when I was um, going to, well, because I was going from point A to point B. Um, <laughs> but I haven't seen this, like, just walking around the city. Like, it's, like I said, somewhat muted. Somewhat muted. Yeah, like, oh, over here, over here, JT, as you know, as you know, some people that supported Trump were, we'll call them closeted Trump supporters. They didn't want to wear their MAGA hats. They didn't want to wear, you know, they didn't want to tell the pollsters that they supported Trump for fear that, you know, they were going to get canceled or they might be harassed about supporting Trump. Was there, did you sense anything like that for people that did support Bolsonaro? Because obviously it looks like it's a even split in Brazil. You know, half the population supports Bolsonaro. Yeah, it's, I didn't see that. I mean, like I said, the people who backed him, the people who I talked to who backed them had no issue telling me that they backed them. And we're very clear, the left is going to destroy this country. That's the way they framed it. And so in the political debates and political arguments, no. It, is it possible? Yes. I mean, and I would imagine there's always going to be some people who 
skirt that line where they're like, okay, I have some lefty values, but I think Bolsonaro is better, so I don't want to break it up. That's always going to take place in the middle. But all things being equal, no, I didn't see that. If you're back Bolsonaro, you had no issue saying I back Bolsonaro, and it would come up in a heartbeat. No, I didn't see it. I mean, but you can see it in the polling, right? It's not like Lula won with this kind of dominating. That wasn't that. Lula won by, what, two percentage points at most, like barely two percentage points. So this was an extremely close race, and the population was extremely divided. And again, voting is compulsory here. So it's not like, you know, 20% of the population didn't vote, or like in the States, like 40% of the population voted, and you have no idea what the other 50, 60% thinks. It's not that. No, it was a split. It was a real split in the country on this one. Hey, Jamal, uh, Lula is promising to, you know, as many politicians do, talk about uniting the country. Um, But what do you think that he's going to actually do? Um, I know that there was definitely an issue with what was at Bolsonaro and what people, many people felt like the destruction of the Amazon rainforest or climate change, ironically, ended up being somewhat of an issue there along with Bolsonaro's response to COVID. But what do you think that Lula himself is going, you know, any ideas on what any big, like item, big ticket things that Bolsonaro, I'm sorry, that Lula is going to do beyond just, you know, the usual (laughs) unite the country. Anything you see on the horizon for him? So he definitely is leaning into this idea of climate change. Basically, um, rainforest or protecting the rainforest, that's one of the things that came up, especially from the standpoint of environmentalists. They love him for that. They think he's going to change some of the policies that Bolsonaro did. Bolsonaro basically lessened the protections for the rainforest. Um, They believe that on issues of climate change, he is going to, right here, we will prove once again that it's possible to generate wealth without destroying the environment. So right off the bat, this is one of the things that he was basically telling the supporters. I'm going to be this guy who's in it for climate change and I'm going to be able to generate wealth in this country without necessarily destroying the environment. You can do both. You don't have to have one or the other. So there's that part. Um, also, you know, I can't underestimate, I mean, I can't understate. When Lula was in office the very first time around, Lula bought 20 million people out of poverty. I mean, like I said, he left with an 80% approval rating. I would imagine that his frame of reference is something similar to that. Like, how do we stem poverty? How do we improve the lives of p- typical Brazilians? How do we make sure people have money in their pockets to basically be able to have a leisure activity? Who was it? Wasn't it a U.S. president that was making this argument that people want a beer or something like that? Like they want to be able to sit down at the end oh, of the week and, have a, and have a beer with the uh, president. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of who yeah, it may beer. have been a strategist well, it, or it something. Is, it is. It it's is. Like it's from a, one of these um one of these PR strategy houses, but it's backed by Anheuser Busch. That was the whole point was to sell beer. Well, see, Lula's point though was more so like. Look, you deserve to be able to have a life where you are not struggling from cave cradle to the grave where somebody is putting their hand in your pocket all the way through. Meaning you deserve to be able to sit down at the end of the week after a hard day of work and have a life and have some space cushion in your life. And this is a Democrat argument. Like, uh, that's a, a Joe Biden argument, if I'm, if I'm being honest. I mean, but it's a practical argument. You shouldn't necessarily have to be poor if you're working all week. It's very straightforward. And so this idea about this kind of economic security for the population itself is one of those points that Lula is making. And he's backed up by the last time he was in office. I guess the question is, these are different circumstances. I mean, this is not back when he was elected, what, in 2003 or something to that effect. This is not then. There are different phenomena that Lula has to basically deal with and different realities that Lula has to deal with. So whether or not he's going to be able to accomplish this, no, I mean, Lula was criticized by members of his own party, by the left, especially the hard left, 
because he was willing to take in certain people that were on the right in order to have this kind of, I guess you can say, a broad spectrum of point of view in regards to how he's going to pursue his work. Whether he does this this time around, I'm not quite sure. How he does this, again, I am not quite sure. He's going to have to deal with a divided, I think it's Congress or Parliament, whichever they have here. I don't exactly remember which one. But he's going to have to deal with that. And so you have a far-right or center-right Congress, let's call it a Congress or Parliament, that you basically have to grapple with. So whatever he wants, he's still going to be somewhat limited in his ability to get those things accomplished. It's interesting. It's, it, I, I am super curious about what he does and how he goes about trying to do it and how he tries, I guess, throw bones to the right to try to get some of the things that he wants accomplished. Yeah, to form a coalition government, obviously. I mean, it that's that's like a lost art that we have here. We've We've lost that ability to form coalitions and actually pass laws in our Congress. So, you know, whoever is leading anywhere, anywhere else, in any assembly, anywhere, God bless you. I hope you guys do better than we're, we're doing here stateside. And we're supposed to be the beacon of democracy and the symbol, right, for everyone to follow. No, 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 no. Don't follow our lead, please. <laughs> well, they have a Congress. It's a um, National Congress of Brazil, I think they call it. Yeah, National Congress of Brazil. I want to make sure. I hate I when I don't know, I try not to nail yeah. down one side yeah. or the other. Yeah. But yeah, it's a Congress. Let's just tell again, everybody, don't, don't, follow, don't follow America's lead on this. <laughs> if it's anything like, God, I hope it's not like the U.S., where nothing gets done yeah. because neither side wants to give an inch and everything else. Yep. But we'll see. I mean, Lula was, like I said, 80% approval rating. Yep. I mean, the thing that hit him and that hurt him, actually, and I didn't realize from the left, I look at it as he was overthrown in a coup and that when he got back in power, it was clear that it was a okay, people are fine with it. That's not the way it works in practice, though. The moment that he went to jail, that becomes one of those things that the right uses. Oh, he's corrupt. He's corrupt. Yeah. He's an inmate. He's a, you know, it becomes that. And so the idea that it was a soft coup, that doesn't apply. No, no, he got locked up. The judiciary just did him a favor in order to let him out. It becomes that. So that becomes part of the talking point that's basically used against him. So, you know, yes, he left with 80%. Do people remember that? Especially the young group who may not even entirely remember who he is and everything else. I, I don't know. I mean, and how much power Lula is going to be able to use. I mean, granted, he has power from the standpoint of foreign policy. So there's that. And of course, he's going to have power to make certain rules and decisions, everything else, regardless of Congress, just like the president. Yeah. Um, but within the context of law and within the context of the items that are taking place in the country itself, yeah, he's going to have a divided Congress. Well, JT, as you say, I mean, we'll leave it right there. We got to head over to to John Kiriakou, who's coming up uh, right after you. But um, as you say, all's fair in love and politics. So, you know, uh, Jamal Thomas out there in Brazil doing the legwork. Uh, have a good trip out there. We'll be keeping in touch this week as things continue to shift and change and unfold. Uh, we'll be right back after this break with John Kiriakou. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. We just wrapped up with Jamal Thomas, who's out there reporting on the Brazilian elections. And now we're going to head to our friend John Kiriakou, host, co-host, of political misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. He's out there covering the Israeli Knesset elections. Um, 
as I say, the 537th one of, you know, three years or something like that. Uh, John Kiriakou, what's shaking out there, my friend? What's happened in the last 24 hours? Well, I'll tell you, not a whole heck of a lot. I was out and about early this morning. I went out to a couple of polling places. It looked to be very slow. Um, I see a, a report saying that the Arab vote seems to be lagging, which would be good for Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, Manila, I've been in a lot of countries during their elections over the last 30 years, and I've never seen one that just treated it like any old normal day, like today is being treated here in Israel. Nobody is excited for these elections. Nobody. Is it election fatigue, John? Absolutely. That's what everybody's talking about. They they know that because there are so many parties and so many parties that are going to be represented in the Knesset when this is all said and done, which is then going to lead to a long, probably a long protracted period where um, one of three, you know, leading uh, party leaders is going to uh, try to form a government and it's going to end up being a weak government that will likely only last 12 or 18 months. They're just not, they're just not into it. Well, I mean, let me ask you this. You've been in a lot of countries over the past 30 years, and some of that 30 years was was with the CIA. I mean, have you seen any fingerprints of U.S. presence in this new Israeli election? No, not, not like I've seen in other elections around the world. Um, what I'm seeing here is... <laughs> And it's not just me. Israelis are talking about this all the time. It's that when Donald Trump was president, it was far more clear that he wanted Benjamin Netanyahu as the prime minister. And it didn't matter what right wing parties Netanyahu had to uh, had to join with in order to create a government. The Biden White House is largely staying out of this. They don't like Netanyahu. They don't want him to be prime minister again. They like Yair Lapid, even though he's seen as kind of a weak caretaker. They like Benny Gantz. They like uh, even Avigdor Lieberman because they've dealt with him in the past. So for the most part, the United States isn't a factor here. One of the things that, that I noticed on the street this morning, which was just so bizarre to me, I made a mental note to mention it uh, because I knew that we were going to talk. It's election day and people are out on the street selling t-shirts that say, don't worry, America, Israel is with you. What? And I, I don't know what to make of this. It's the oddest thing. Don't worry, America, Israel is with you. On what? On yeah. t-shirts? Like, on t-shirts. On what, on what and issue? <laughs> people are selling them, like when you stop at a red light, people are coming up to the car to sell them to you at the car. They have tables set up on the on the sidewalks. It's just a crazy thing. One other point I wanted to make too, before I forget, it slips my mind. Um, there's this, I mentioned this yesterday on the show. There's this new party that is led by, um, by a radical right-wing extremist, someone who has been um, accused of, of bigotry and racism and homophobia. Uh, he was arrested a couple of years ago and and the the government intended to charge him with with um, an act of terrorism for shooting at a Palestinian. It was dropped. 
Uh, he's long been seen as a as a minor fringe character, and now it looks like this crazy little party is going to win as many as six seats in the Knesset. Now, if he wins six seats in the Knesset, um, that would make him a serious person to to join a Netanyahu government. This is something that everybody's talking about today that that they're very worried about because of the right fr- I'm still my brain is still reeling from these t-shirts like what what is it what are the Israelis trying to what message are they trying to send because it does know, those t-shirts right? don't indicate you know a, a political leader that they're advocating no, it's for like, what are you talking about you know like what are they talking about we don't hey what, do you, you think know, it's Ukraine right. Do you think it's Ukraine? Because <laughs> that's what that's the only Zelensky, thing I can yeah, think of. Zelensky, I mean, the the Israelis have largely kind of stayed out of it, and we know just over the weekend that Zelensky was basically calling for Israel to stop this ambiguity. So, is that what they mean? I don't. I can't it's, imagine. It's possible. It's possible because there's such an enormous um, uh, Ukrainian. A Jewish population here. We talked yesterday about the about the large Russian Jewish population too. So that that could be it. But you know, even if it is, even if that is the point, why today? It's election day. You know, n- nobody's nobody's talking about it. Nobody's out there campaigning. I, listen, I I'm I'm going to brag here. I got I got my ten thousand steps before nine a.m. today. <laughs> right. I was out early and going everywhere and nobody is interested in this, in this race, at least not in Jerusalem. Now, um, I was watching the Israeli press or the, 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 uh, Israeli news earlier today. And they said that the, um, the Arab vote is seriously lagging. Uh, that's good for Netanyahu and the right wing parties, but, uh, but that's it. Nobody else is talking about anything. Yeah. I mean, I know. Look, whatever Joe Biden and his administration says about, you know, about Bibi, at the end of the day, John, nothing changes with the U.S.-Israeli relationship. The U.S. is going to continue to back Israel, uh, you know, without question about anything. So it it really doesn't matter, I guess, to the United States who's actually in charge. So I, I suppose that's probably why we haven't really heard much coming from American politicians about these elections. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think as far as the United States is concerned, the Israelis know that there's going to be consistency there in policy. Nothing's going to change. It doesn't matter who the prime minister is. Still nothing is going to change. Um, you know, I'm looking at I'm looking at the latest polls. I'm a nut for polls, whether it's in the US elections or anywhere else. And there's a poll that came out today uh, published by Haaretz, which is one of the the two main newspapers. And it says that uh, in a poll of polls, all the main pollsters agree that the Netanyahu block of parties is polling in the range of 59 to 62 Knesset seats. You need 61 to win, yeah. 61 to be prime minister. Um, that is a combination of four right-wing parties led by Likud, which is Netanyahu's party. Um, they are expected to get at least 59 seats. So again, it all depends on turnout. And if turnout is high, and I'm telling you, I didn't see anybody standing in line to vote anywhere in Jerusalem today. Um, If turnout is high, then the right wing is looking at closer to this 59 seats. If turnout is low, 
then they're looking at closer to the 62 seats. The bottom line is this. I think that in the next couple of weeks, we're probably going to see a very weak government led by Benjamin Netanyahu. It'll just be more of the same. And and as I've always said about Bibi, is that he's the ultimate schmoozer mm-hmm. in, in oh, D.C. Yeah. He's the elbow rubber of they elbow love him rubbers. On the, they love him. Oh, they love him on the Hill. Oh, I'll tell you a little fun fun fact. Uh, when I was, uh, I was just out of graduate school and I was being recruited by the CIA and they asked me to come into CIA headquarters to give them a writing sample, spontaneous writing sample. And I said, okay. So I go in and they give me a file folder that's just jam full of newspaper clippings, uh, all about Benjamin Netanyahu, who at the time was the Israeli ambassador to the United States. And they asked me to take two hours, read through the file, and then write a psychological profile of Netanyahu. And the only thing that I remember writing was that I believed because of his ability to work a room, because of his command of the English language, he was born and raised in Chicago, I thought that he would be prime minister of Israel someday. Wow. <laughs> wow. That was in 1989. And here we are, all these years later, talking about Benjamin Netanyahu. But you were just 12, right? <laughs> <laughs> you were a child prodigy. Well, you, you know what, John? So someone else, um, Ben, ben Caspit, I think I'm getting his name right. He was the one who wrote two biographies on Netanyahu. And this is what, he, this is what, he's, this is what he's quoted as saying. For his supporters, Netanyahu is something between a savior touched by a god and a persecuted saint. He has political skills like no one else. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's absolutely true. Uh, and, and that's why he's always in the mix. You know, there's another thing, too, that I wanted to raise. And I know we're running short of time. But Israel, I mentioned this briefly yesterday. I, I got more detail. Israel has this very strange... excuse me, electoral law, saying that a political party needs to win only three and a quarter percent of the vote to win seats in the Knesset. Three and a quarter percent. So that's why there are so many different parties. Now, among the parties that are in danger today of not making that crazy low three and a quarter percent threshold are labor, which has governed Israel for, you know, much of the last 70 years, Meretz, the other left of center party, uh, Yisrael Betenu and Hadash Tal, which are um, parties that joined with the United Arab List, they may not make 3.25% today. It's just crazy. And then there's there's another member of the joint list, Bilad. We talked about that yesterday, <coughs> which is polling at only 2%. So without strong Arab turnout today, it's going to be a right-wing government. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be what shade of Republican or over there conservative do you want in Israel? And, and, and John, uh, producer Laith wanted us to make a correction. Bibi was raised in Philly, not Chicago. <laughs> oh, was it Philly? I thought Philly. it was Chicago. Okay, thank you, Laith. Thank you, Laith. Noted. <laughs> he says as the local Arab, he's got he's to point that out. Uh, All right, we'll leave that right there. John Kariaku, thank you so much for that update. He's out there reporting for us in Israel. Uh, We're wrapping up the second hour here at Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. We'll be back for the third and final hour with Mark Sloboda, so you don't want to miss that. Uh, We will be right back after this break. Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, BRB. (laughs) 
Salt Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us out there, all you rumblers. And those listening on Radio 105.5 FM and 1390 AM here in the D.C. Metro, also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM, and 104.7 FM on that radio dial. If you still have the dial, otherwise it's the digital. Boop, boop, boop. I am the Vixen of Veritas, the Thrilla in Manila, Chan, along with guest co-host Malik Abdul, the Atomic MAGA in the house. In the flesh. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. I always love John Kiriakou's stories. I know. It, it, and actually, I'm fascinated by just his career. I know. I mean, just the CIA, because it's, you know, cloak and dagger and things are done, you know, a lot of nefarious things and a lot of some, you know, some good things too. I'll, I'll say some. I don't know about a lot, but some, but, you know. Nine, there's 9-11. Either that was botched or, yep. you know, they, they failed on intelligence there or something else. I'm just saying. And, you know, before you get to your headline, so I did have some news. Not typically the news that we talk about on here, but it's something that is definitely trending online. Mm-hmm. Um, takeoff. Takeoff is the third of the Migos. The rap oh. group, the Migos, in the I kitchen, wrist twisting like stir fry. Uh, takeoff. You're a hip hop fan. That's yes, right. yes. Takeoff. Uh, one of the members of the rap group, the Migos, was shot in Houston. Shot dead is what yeah. I just got Yeah, the flash so there alert. were three members of the Migos Quavo, Offset, and Takeoff. Offset is the one who's. Or Takeoff. Um, well, Offset is the oh. one who's married to, well, I guess with Cardi B. Oh. And Takeoff is one of the other ones. So Takeoff is the one that was shot. They were oh at a private gosh. party in Houston. So more violence. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. And so my, I don't, I'm not a hip hop fan. I enjoy some of it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but my connection to the Migos when that story just flashed right now, um, my very good friend that I grew up with, known since middle school, is um, one of their, what do they call it? Their they're fashion people. Okay, the stylist. 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 That's it. I'm not into that world. <laughs> I don't even know. There's fashion stylist. So I was wow. I was just thinking I, I gotta text him and I mean I know he's friends with he's their stylist, so yeah. I gotta send a condolences. That's awful. Yeah, sad for that, but as we just saw, and, and you're gonna talk about in the headlines, fourteen shot in Chicago. Uh, another yeah, another big story like that out of um, where I'm from, the San Gabriel Valley in, in Los Angeles. Um, same thing, a Halloween party, shooting, two people were killed, uh, multiple people injured at a Halloween party um, in West Covina, if anyone wow. knows where that is, West Covina, not far from um, the Sriracha factory. Oh, the, the hot, the... <laughs> the hot sauce. Oh, really? Yeah, West Covina is very, very close okay. uh, to the where the Sriracha factory is. Um, so... And thank you for correcting me because I've been saying Sriracha. 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 Gotcha. Sriracha. <laughs> So there, there you go. Yeah, a lot of, lot of violence to get to in the news. Uh, so with that, uh, a little, how about some less violence as being delivered the news by uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia. He was speaking at a press conference in Sochi with the leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan following trilateral talks 
aimed at restoring peace in the Caucasus region. President Vladimir Putin said that Ukrainian forces had endangered cargo ships carrying grain through that humanitarian corridor that was set up by Russia and Turkey um, to allow passage uh, out of the conflict zone. He said, quote, these drones, both underwater and aerial, they partially traveled in the corridor along which grain is exported from Ukraine. And in this way, they created a threat to both our ships, which should ensure the safety of grain export, and to civilian ships that are engaged in this, and we have pledged to ensure the security. But pardon me for the expression, if Ukraine strikes these ships, we will be guilty. Just like everyone is now blathering on about what Russia is doing, not remembering what caused it, but it is caused by creating a threat to this humanitarian corridor, he said. Over to domestic news. The suspect arrested in connection with the attack on Paul Pelosi, husband of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, is facing federal assault and attempted kidnapping charges for his alleged role in the incident, according to a DOJ release. They say, quote, DePape is charged with one count of assault of an immediate family member of a United States official with the intent to retaliate against the official on account of the performance of official duties. DePape is also charged with one count of attempted kidnapping of a United States official on account of the performance of official duties, says the DOJ in a written statement. A lot of the throwing around of the word official, so... A lot of official charges there. The first charge carries a maximum sentence of 30 years in prison. Second charge, a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Then former President Donald Trump has filed an appeal with SCOTUS. As if SCOTUS doesn't have a whole ton of stuff on their plate right now. He's asking them to block the release of his tax documents to a Democrat-controlled House committee. And he says that, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but the case raises important questions about the separation of powers. Uh, So he's asking the court to weigh in on this um, by Wednesday, November 2nd, which is tomorrow. The Court of Appeals here in D.C. had originally ruled to allow the release of these IRS docs pertaining to Trump to go into effect on October 3rd. So he's already behind the eight ball on that. He's supposed to give that to them the Democrat committee, um, and it's supposed to be made public, but he's trying to block that by appealing it with the Supreme Court. Then in mid-October, sitting President Joe Biden expressed concern that the Republicans could jeopardize future aid for Ukraine after current House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy vowed to cease writing blank checks to Kiev if Republicans gain majority in the lower chamber after these midterms next week. So according to the U.S. media, a rare split has emerged within the Republican Party, which is likely to escalate into a more open battle if the Republicans gain control of Congress and faces, quote, forceful requests from Biden and then, quote, emotional appeals from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Now, the division within the Republicans presents a challenge for Biden, who has been working to hold together domestic and global coalition to support Ukraine amid, back at home, 
rising food and gas prices, as well as the global hunger crisis. So it sounds like they're tacitly wagging their finger, the U.S. media, just a little bit, saying he's kind of ignoring all of this stuff that's happening. Then, to that point there, with the crisis at home, a diesel supply alert has been issued on the U.S. East Coast from Mansfield Energy, a leader in petroleum marketing and fuel supply, describing the current market as, quote, rapidly devolving. They say, quote, Markets are now seeing extremely high prices in the Northeast along with supply outages along the Southeast, warning that the fuel logistics company is warning uh, that we're running really low. Here's what they say, that the alert in the memo was extended to states including both Carolinas, Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and Maryland. And they issued an advisory to businesses that rely on diesel saying that out here on the East Coast, we normally have a reserve of about 50 million barrels. Right now, we're down to about half that. So a diesel shortage is coming. Then more domestic sad news. 14 people, including three minors, were shot or injured in a drive-by shooting during a Halloween party in the city of Chicago. Local police saying the incident occurred at about 9.30 p.m. on Monday night, which was Halloween, from unidentified assailants who opened fire from a car at a group of partygoers. The shooting lasted just a few seconds. Preliminary data showing that there were at least two shooters. Quote, We have reported at least up to 14 people shot. They are all in various conditions between critical and non-life-threatening. We also have a person struck by a vehicle at the scene as well, says the Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown talking to reporters and specifying, worth noting, three of the minors there, a toddler age three, a youngster age 11, and a 13-year-old were among the victims. Then back over to international news, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakhrova wants answers regarding the mysterious, it's done iPhone message allegedly sent by Prime Minister at the time, very short time, Liz Truss, to supposedly America's Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, regarding the Nord Stream 2 pipeline attacks or sabotage. She said, quote, to be honest, I don't care who got this information and how. I'm interested in London's answer to the following. Did Prime Minister Liz Truss of Britain send a message to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken immediately after the Nord Stream gas pipeline was blown up with the words, it's done. That's what Ms. Zakrova said in her Telegram post. Now, she suggested that millions of people around the world are waiting for answers to that question of how the planet's energy security has been undermined and what role she specifically notes that the Anglo-Saxons played in this terrorist attack. I'd say them's fighting words. Then President Biden has allegedly raised his voice at Volodymyr Zelensky. Or it sound probably was like, come on, man. Come on. Apparently during a phone conversation with the Ukrainian president, after Zelensky asked for more, sir. He wanted more money, more aid. 
The report suggests that right after Biden confirmed that he had approved a $1 billion aid package, Mr. Zelensky apparently started listing out all the laundry list of help that he needed, but he still wasn't receiving. Apparently he had a fit and then this made President Biden angry and that he raised his voice and reprimanded Mr. Zelensky, saying that the Ukrainian leader should show a little more gratitude. Well, he's not wrong on that, if that's really what happened. Now, the report also suggests that the relations between the two presidents got did improve after that because Kiev went into damage control mode. Mr. Zelensky then publicly, you know, thanking the U.S. for generosity and blah, 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 kissing the ring. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But, you know, I guess he was pouting and uh, wanted more because it's a it's a meme a friend of mine sent me. It's the a Russian, it's a bear, and they put the Russian flag on it, and the bear is eating a like grabbing a wild pig, and they somebody put a Ukrainian flag on the little pig. I know. And it's right savage, but it says, Help! I'm winning. So that's just it just really per- perfect for Mark Sloboda, who's coming up next. Um, so let me get through these headlines. Then more than 100 protests organized by truck drivers, as we heard from Jamaro. Uh, for Jair Bolsonaro, who lost the presidential runoff election, took place in 18 Brazilian states on Monday. Uh, 100% of the ballots have been counted. The tally officially, 49.1% of the vote to Jair Bolsonaro. to Lula da Silva. So it looks like Lula da Silva is making that comeback as president. Then in tech news, the world's richest man, Elon Musk, apparently now going to be the acting CEO of Twitter as well, adding CEO of this, that, and the other thing, Tesla, Boxable, whatever, you name it. He's like America's CEO. Um, This, according to a filing he... uh, gave to the New York Stock Exchange on Monday. Now, Musk reign as the new owner of Twitter began last week. As we all know, he brought the sink in, literally a, a sink, dropped it off in the middle of Twitter headquarter lobbies, the lobby of <laughs> Twitter. Um, then he took control, fired the old boss, Parag Agrawal, other top executives, um, include Vijaya Gade. She's the policy and so-called trust department chief, uh, the CFO, Ned Siegel, and the general counsel, Sean Edgett, all removed from their posts. I don't know if Elon's going to do all of their jobs. Um, And I don't know when that man's going to sleep, but whatever. He filed that he's the new CEO of Twitter. He also blew out everybody on the board of directors uh, in the past 24 hours. So they're gone too. He's also bringing in 50 of his trusted Uh, Tesla employees to create this new council or something um, at Twitter. And he says that they all come from different political stripes, uh, but they are trusted workers from Tesla. He wants them to weigh in on what's happening um, at Twitter and how he should run Twitter. So we will see. Then in Earth Science News, astronomers have located apparently three killer, they're calling it killer asteroids, that have been hiding in the sun's glare. They're called near-Earth objects, NEOs. Uh, asteroids within Earth's orbit and Venus are typically difficult to observe because the sun shields them from telescope observation. However, uh, 
A new one was done at a different time. They called it a twilight survey to scour the area. They published their findings in the Astronomical Journal. The scientists said, quote, our twilight survey is scouring the area within the Earth's the orbit of Earth and Venus for asteroids so far, we have found two large near-Earth asteroids that are about one kilometer across in size that we call planet killers, says astronomer Scott S. Shepard at the Earth and Planets Laboratory of the Carnegie Institute for Science right here in the district. Then this day in history, back in 1894, vaccine for diphtheria was found by Dr. Emile Roux of Paris. Back in 1916, Paul Milyakov delivers in the Russian State Duma the famous stupidity or treason speech, precipitating the downfall of the Boris Sturmer government. In 1952, Ivy Mike, the first thermonuclear weapon to utilize the H-bomb design of Edward Teller and Stanislaw Ulam, detonated out there in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean. And then the year 2012, scientists detect evidence of light from the universe's first stars predicted to have formed some 500 million years after the Big Bang. And that will do it for your headlines this Tuesday, November the 1st. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right. A lot of news today. A lot of news. And, and that's not even like the half of it. No, it's that's not. Just, like, that's just, uh, yeah. But uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk to Mark Sloboda about all the stuff happening in Ukraine, uh, the grain corridors, the the this alleged text message from Liz Truss. I don't know. That's just so... Yeah. It, it, this is like a Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back after this break. With Mark Sloboda, you're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, along with Atomic MAGA Malik Abdul. We are being joined now by our last guest of the day, are we sa- dare I say it? Are we saving the best for last? We are saving the best for last. No offense. No <laughs> offense. We love you, JT. We and love John. we love you, uh, Patillo, all of you guys. But Mark Sloboda, I mean, who Mark else can we go to man. to talk about what's happening in Ukraine, in Russia, and this international stuff? Uh, Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda, the number one. Mark Sloboda one. He's got a new YouTube channel called The Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. And you can find him on Facebook as well at Gramsci, G-R-A-M-S-C-I. Mark Sloboda, good morning. Good to have you, or good afternoon, rather. Manila, Malik, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines, and uh, shameless flattery will get you everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Let me butter you up some more. Uh, Talk to us about what's happening here with this whole Liz Trust thing. I mean, yes, we we know she was there for she was a flash in the pan. She failed miserably as prime minister. They booted her out. But now there's apparently a leak somewhere that says she she texted and Anthony Blinken at the State Department and said, "It's done." And apparently the timestamp on it was just shortly after the Nord Stream pipeline attacks. 
What do you know about that? What have you heard? I mean, who is leaking this? Who is who saw it? Where? I mean, where can we see this? Yeah. Okay. So uh, first of all, it has uh, been revealed by the British government that they had a hacking problem. In particular, Liz Truss's phone from the time she was foreign secretary was hacked into, and uh, they presume that the culprits are Russian intelligence services. So they provided no details as to that, um, and or or groups acting on behalf of Russian intelligence services. And this particular leak. The suggestion that Liz Truce treat, treat, uh, tweeted out, it's done, just moments after terrorist attacks on the Nord Stream uh, pipelines, was revealed by Kim.com, mm. who is kind of a famous, infamous Finnish-German techno-businessman, enemy of authority everywhere, who has, you know, uh, with his uh, cyber connections... Uh, has claimed that this information is uh, from a hacking group cloud that made the information available. I have not seen it confirmed anywhere. Uh, the Russian government, there a Russian diplomat uh, uh, to the UN, only specifically said that you know that he has heard this and that it warrants invest international investigation. Of course, if Russian intelligence did hack this, they're certainly not going to reveal their methods, right? <laughs> or what they get. That's, that's unfortunately, us, us out in the rest of the world would love to know what, what actual intelligence, evidence, these sorts of things. But the reality is that governments are, every government is very loath to ever completely make available such evidence because it would ruin their uh, ability to get such evidence in the future. But I mean, obviously it could be any anybody with, I don't know, like, uh, uh, what is it called? Pegasus from the Israeli tech company that was used, you know, like, for example, the Saudis allegedly used on Jamal Khashoggi. Um, it could, I mean, it, it's not difficult to hack into an iPhone if, you know, you, you have the means. And, and, and further to that, we saw during the Obama administration we know it's a proven thing that they hacked into Angela Merkel's personal cell phone and not even not even her official one. That, that Obama was listening in on, yeah, that the U.S. intelligence yes. was listening in. So now it's just kind of brushed under the table. It was revealed that uh, there were a number uh, of members of the British government uh, whose phone numbers were available online. Uh, to a hacking group, and you could simply pay to get access to them, which evidently makes it easier to use. And to you know, to to compound on stupidity, evidently Liz Truce was using her personal iPhone instead of the more secure uh, phone provided to her by her own GCHQ uh, cyber force. So you know. Uh, we live in a world, unfortunately, where in the cyberspace, warfare is the norm, right? It, it is always the there is always a war going on in cyberspace. I mean, the peace just doesn't exist, right? When you're 
a, a high placed official for a government, you really ought to follow the recommendations of your own tech and cybersecurity uh, uh, officials and advisors. And if you don't, then everything's on you. Yeah, there's a whole apparatus around keeping your your you know whatever messages you're trying to convey to your allied nations. There's a whole apparatus around that. And so for for that to have happened through her personal iPhone is, you know. Very Hillary Clinton. It, it is very <laughs> Hillary Clinton. It so very much is. Another thing I wanted to get to was in our headlines. There are allegedly reports that President Biden was like doing a dad and like wagging his finger at Zelensky for asking for, can I have some more, sir? After he just told him, okay, yeah, Volodymyr, we just approved your $1 billion. A billion dollars. Billion, another billion dollar aid package. And that Zelensky was angry, was like, well, yeah, but I, I need this and I need that. And I need a new iPhone and I need the new Xbox. And I need the, and that, you know, that President Biden scolded him. And then Zelensky had to turn around and, you know, put on a public face and say, well, thank you, Mr. President, and for your assistance. He had to be grateful. He had to be grateful. Is there any chance that the relationships between these two presidents are actually becoming strained? Yeah, I, I wouldn't read too much. Let's face it, Zelensky is a puppet, right? If, if the U.S. wanted him gone, he would be gone in a heartbeat because his regime uh, depends entirely on foreign aid, the driver of which, uh, and by far the biggest um, donor, is the United States. And that is both economic aid, military aid, intelligence, uh, you know, uh, just about everything. Um, and it, even the Washington Post even revealed in the last 24 hours in an article that there are actually now U.S. uniformed troops, not not. CIA, not special forces, which we've already known about, but actual U.S. uniformed troops on the ground in Ukraine, uh, although we're supposed to believe that they're only there inspecting weapons cages that the U.S. has has delivered to Ukraine. But I wouldn't read too much into this. I actually would be far more interested in why it was leaked, right? Because when when these things are revealed to the press, it's not a slip of the tongue. It is done with a purpose. And if anything, it really just shows, I mean, we know that, that the Kiev regime is in bad situations and depends entirely on Western aid. And the fact that this was released might be wanting to show a little bit of distance uh, between Zelensky and Biden. Uh, but I have no doubt that U.S. support uh, to Kiev will continue, whether it's through a curmudgeonly old Biden uh, who is is chiding the uh, child uh, Zelensky or, uh, you know, if the Republicans gain control of Congress, none of that will change. This is, you know, geopolitical, hardwired foreign policy. It is about hegemony. It has broad bipartisan support. And even when you get someone in there like, say, Donald Trump, whose inclinations aren't necessarily to follow that foreign policy orthodoxy, he very quickly finds that he has no choice but to follow through with it anyway. 
and he does so. <laughs> so it doesn't really make any difference. And he had a very good point, Mark, and I agree with you. I, I think that's probably a little theater coming from um, the Biden White House about this. Probably um, this is attached to just last week we had the or the week before we had the letter from the progressive wing of the caucus urging peace. And they had to come back and save face or eat eat a little crow. And um, Nancy Pelosi got in their ear and told them that they needed to pull back. So I think this is Biden probably more so trying to just position himself, distance himself ahead of the midterms. I don't expect this to help him very much. But if I could shift the focus just a tad bit, well, not a tad bit, um, the grain, um, this whole idea of Russia, at least from their perspective, suspending the grain deal, Um, from Russia's perspective, the reason that they're actually doing this is because they're saying that, hey, you guys are using this strait to conduct military operations against the Russian Federation. And so we don't want to help facilitate that by, um, you know, allowing grains to come through that that particular um, straight. But what do you make of Russia's position on this? I mean, does it is it a reasonable position to not want to allow ships to come through the same area where, at least from Russia's perspective, they're being used to attack them? Yeah, Russia's official position is that they can't no longer guarantee the security if the regime in Kiev will can continue conducting. Uh, operations with um, kamikaze uh, sea drones like this. So they they simply, uh, you know, if they're using that corridor for this, they can't provide the security, and therefore they're they're suspending the operation. Unofficially, of course, uh, there is a, a a certainly a bit there of yeah, you use this uh, corridor for a albeit unsuccessful large-scale air and naval drone attack on the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol, right, which, if it had succeeded, would be a major propaganda talking point, uh, you know, on 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 the line of, of the uh, sinking of the Moskva with, with uh, the uh, Black Sea Fleet's uh, cruiser a uh, month ago, its flagship, which was uh, almost certainly uh, done with a Western harp um, anti-ship missile. Yeah, Mark, it's an, and just to not, not to cut you off, but it's important to note that Ukraine has neither confirmed nor denied carrying out that attack. Yeah, I mean, they've got a, a policy uh, of that, although you have enough regime um, surrogates, presidential advisors crowing about it online, and then all of a sudden it turns out not to be successful, and then they have no idea what happened or who did it or anything like that, right? It's uh, it's those Russians attacking themselves again with drones, right? Yeah. Just like they blow up their own bridges and pipelines and everything. Okay, so that's absurdity, right? We don't we don't need to to pander to that uh, rather you know crude propaganda effort. Mark, Mark, I heard a funny analogy about that when all this was going down was that the that the Russians were like punching themselves and saying, look how hard I can punch myself. Imagine what I could do to you. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the um, I think the, the most important thing out of that is that the Russians says that British uh, Navy uh, personnel were involved in the planning of that. Um, at a Ukrainian a naval base at uh, Achakov in the Nikolaev region. And immediately after that happened the next night, that base no longer exists. 
right? I mean, it, the, 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 the facilities that were used uh, were uh, heavily hit uh, by cruise missiles. Uh, so um, that is no longer a problem. But Russia also announced that the same British experts were involved in the planning and implementation of the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines, and, and that's a lot bigger. But when it comes to this grain deal, all right, my reading of this whole incident is that Russia knew that the attack was going to take place beforehand. They were obviously prepared for it, right? It did no damage. All of the drones were, were routed very quickly, despite it being some four o'clock in the morning. And the intelligence about it was announced within a few hours, which says to me that they knew about it beforehand, allowed it to happen under controlled conditions, and then are using that to officially, uh, you know, officially with. Uh, suspend their participation in the grain deal, which they were already not happy with. Uh, one, because the majority, the, the largest portions of this grain, and the UK is the, uh, or sorry, the Ukraine is the fifth largest exporter of grain in the world. Russia, by the way, is number one itself. One, that the majority of the grain was going to the EU or Turkey. <laughs> and then only some four or five percent of it was going to the most needy countries in the world. So all this grain deal do, was doing was helping lower inflation in the West. That, that's the biggest portion of it. And secondly, as part of the deal, right, it was brokered by Turkey and the U.N., the U.N. promised to pressure the West to uh, reduce their sanctions affecting Russia's ability to get its grain and fertilizer to the most needy countries, particularly Africa. Uh, but um, it, it, the, the uh, sanctions are specifically on the shipping and the insurance, without which the boats full of grain and fertilizer simply can't go. Um, and the way what actually happened was the EU reduced those sanctions on the fertilizer, but only the fertilizer going to them, not the fertilizer going to Africa. So once again, we see the, the, the cold calculation greed of uh, the European Union in all of this that is simply trying to alleviate the blowback from their own sanctions on Russia and couldn't give a fig uh, about the actual uh, desperate plight uh, of the Africans. So that is why Russia is, is uh, you know, was already, the grain deal was due to be up for renewal on November, November 19th. Yeah, and this just obliviates that. But Russia was already unhappy with the deal. They may try to negotiate new terms out of this. Um, it, right now, I don't see that Russia is, they've already said that they will be unilaterally inspecting any ships now coming out of Ukrainian ports. But the problem here is that there is a real danger because of these Harpoon anti-ship missiles and now uh, kamikaze sea drones uh, that have been provided to Ukraine. And uh, th they present a real danger to the Black Sea Fleet. And we've already seen uh, this previously with the Moskva. So Russia has to decide whether interdicting some grain ships uh, is worth putting their Black Sea fleet at risk. Um, and uh, it's something that um, uh, you know, they really have to do a, a cost-benefit analysis of this. The other problem is, of course, is that 
the, uh, they, there's strong evidence that uh, Ukraine has been using these, um, uh, Ukraine and the West have been using these grain shipments to get weapons uh, in. Uh, and part of the explosives that were used to blow up the Crimean bridge, according to the Russian intelligence assessment, actually made a very circuitous route and was involved on being shifting out of Ukraine on one of the grain ships um, and then arriving in Bulgaria where and made a, a, a trip across the Black Sea to Georgia and then Armenia and then into Russia. Uh, so there, there was other abuse of these grain corridors already being uh, used. And there is a real danger that the West may try to get more weapons in now, even than before, if Russia doesn't actively try to enforce their own interdiction right now. So um, there's there's a lot at play on both sides. Mark, one thing that that you mentioned there, um, one of the very important things that you mentioned was that Russia is actually the number one exporter of grain. Now, out here, like, I know you moved away from the U.S. a long time ago, but here they were saying, you know, when this grain conversation began, all the U.S. mainstream media was saying, oh, Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. And uh, yeah, without any any actual statistics. Yeah, I saw the way the reporting was done. <laughs> the, the U.N. actually cites Ukraine as being a, only 10 percent provider of the world's grain. So I don't know who I don't know who's accurately reporting there if if it's mainstream media or if the UN is saying the right thing but if that's the case Ukraine's only providing 10% why were they why demonize the Russians who are the actual breadbasket like when and now they're actually volunteering to give free of charge some of their grain to the neediest countries they they've already done that as well with fertilizers that are actually stuck in EU ports. They've offered to give them free to African countries. And because they're under sanction in EU ports, right, the ships can't move anywhere because of the sanctions on the ships and the ship's insurance. And it's just sitting there completely uh, useless. And that's because the real problem with uh, food prices, with inflation, with the real threat to famine and malnutrition is is not Ukraine. The problem is the Western sanctions on uh, Russia. And they get out of it by saying, we're not sanctioning the grain. Well, okay, you're not sanctioning the grain or fertilizer, but you are sanctioning Russia's ability to conduct financial transactions to get it there. And you're sanctioning the ship's and the insurance. So that's, you know, that's their, their, their clever rhetorical way out of this. But that, the fact that Russia is the biggest supplier of grain and fertilizer to the world and is in being inhibited, uh, it's part of Western propaganda. I did not see one Western article talking about this that actually admitted that Russia is the biggest exporter of wheat to the world. They were just trying to blow up that, oh, Ukraine provides grain to the entire world, when actually they're way back in number five on the list. And Russia has had a bumper record crop of grain this year that is just waiting to get to the rest of the world, right? 
Uh, but it's Western sanctions, you know, their, their economic war on Russia with sanctions that is actually preventing it. And that is why you see African countries having no truck with these sanctions, having, have, having nothing to do, uh, not showing up to meetings uh, that the West tries to arrange with Ukraine, because they know who, who is really inhibiting, uh, you know, the grain and the fertilizer and the energy that they need at prices that they can afford. And they know it's not Russia's fault. You know, Mark, I want to switch gears a little bit before we run out of time with you. Um, this past weekend, or just last week, uh, was the the big Valdai annual conference? And Valdai, for those that don't know, is the big is a big the big preeminent Russian think tank. And leaders from around the world are invited, and and thought leaders from around the world. Uh, President Putin goes annually. What were some of the biggest takeaways that you saw? What were some of the big um, the big things points that President Putin hit on that we should consider? Okay, so the Vaila was originally billed as kind of a Russia-West international relations economic dialogue forum. Uh, but obviously that has fallen out in recent years because there's not much dialogue happening. And oh my God, Manila. I mean, this this is one of those speeches by Putin, like 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 the 2007 Munich Security Conference speech, that you really need to go to the presidential website in English and pull up the transcript and read not only his statements but his answers in the uh, you know the questions and, and and answers portion as well because this is this was just an and a real intellectual tour de force. There's no Western media that can talk like this and bring up you know, uh, uh, political philosophy and scientists like Karl Popper and uh, dis- be dis- having academic discussions about the nature of an open society and everything. It's really, really worth reading. Uh, one of the things he particularly talked about was the cancellation of Russian culture in the West and the Russophobia that is uh, sponsoring it and how this never happened during the worst period of the Cold War and how it really says far more about the West and their own supposed values than it does uh, about anything else. Uh, but there was so much to unpack in that. I mean, I, I, I seriously need to do, uh, some articles and vids just on that speech, but they might run over an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen some of the clips that were translated from Vladimir Putin and, you know, obviously in the West, some of the media's saying, oh, he's, he's dying. He's got leukemia. He's got cancer. He's got, I did, I did see right, that. Right. Like, the, are his, you kidding his me? His arm, his left arm doesn't work or, you know, he's limping. As we're talking about a president who can turn around and not know where he's I, going. I know, who doesn't know how to exit stage left, right? Like our president can't do that. Meanwhile, you have Vladimir Putin over there. I have seen the clips. I mean, he seems as lucid as ever. He made some very strong arguments and points. And, and I mean, I I don't know if the the U.S. is deliberately just plugging their ears, that we're blindly following the, what the mainstream media says, which basically is State, yes, Depar- State, State Department talking <laughs> points, right? That's all it is. State Department talking points is what the mainstream media says. But if you listen to, if you, if you remove that his name is Vladimir Putin, just listen to this man and what he's saying and tell me how that's not true. That the, the part of the, problem here is that the U.S. has continued to incite violence around the world, and part of it was in Ukraine, which is 
a, a border security, a threat to Russia. The Western media, I mean, just, I mean, when you're talking about a president that reads off, repeat the line and insert <laughs> here off of his teleprompter, right? I mean, uh, it, and but they talk about uh, Putin somehow. I mean, it, is that wishful thinking propaganda or what? I mean, it's just, it's absolutely uh, pointless. But I think a lot of that speech was actually developed, not just at Russians, but at the rest of the world outside of the West, particularly Africa, uh, South America, and Southeast Asia. And he talked a lot about colonialism and how it is being, uh, you know, how neo-colonialism, if you will, he didn't use that word specifically, but that's essentially what he was talking about, is being done in the world today and the necessity of breaking free from this. But I mean, if you were to say which among the world leaders is a modern day philosopher king, then you really need to look no further than this speech. There's certainly so much to if you hear, he's definitely talking to the global South, and he talked, um, he specifically said, he talked about a multipolar future. What does a multipolar future look like to you, Mark? It, 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 it's a future, for one, where the U.S. and the West no longer has a complete political, military, uh, economic, and cultural dominance over world affairs. But most importantly, and what I think Putin highlighted there, it is a world order in where countries respect each other's political, cultural, civilizational differences. They don't try to impose their political system and their culture on others. They respect these differences and, uh, you know, conduct business, political, economic on those terms. And they specifically highlighted the way the Shanghai Cooperation Organization bricks, uh, and so forth, conduct business on those terms. I mean, quite often you hear the West lumping Russia, China, and Iran together as their adversaries, and oh, they're all working together, and can we take on all three of them at the same time? And you look at how different these countries' political systems, their cultures, and their religions are, and what, what unites them together a defensive resistance against an aggressive uh, hegemony that is trying to impose itself militarily, politically, culturally, economically on them. And that's what what Putin really punched home here in very elevated terms. And one of the points that he brought up that the only thing that American mainstream media mentioned just in a blurb on TV that I saw, they actually poked fun of him for talking in, in religious in a religious sense, he brought up Satan, um, effectively basically calling the West Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not paraphrasing here. That's not what he said. But he brought up Satan and the evils and you know, these, basically a, the culture wars um, out West. And I, I would say that was directed towards America in particular. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? I mean, people were making fun of that. But I mean, there's something there. Obviously, I, I think you're right. I think that that part of the, the speech in large part was an appeal to American, you know, maybe some Republican voters uh, in particular. But one of the things that he talked about there, of course, is this uh, imposition of the, you know, the the uh, postmodern identity and gender politics on most of the rest of the world whether it's Saudi Arabia or China or India or Pakistan or, or Africa, that simply, uh, you know, uh, 
it, it goes so far against their own cultures, their own traditions that, uh, you know, they're not ready for it uh, or they I mean, they don't want it. They're not ready for it now. And then that's their decision whether they ever will be at the same time. He said that if that's the way the West wants to go, that's their own business. That, you know, that that they have their right to follow that path, but to try to impose that postmodern liberal identity ideology on the rest of the world is is a recipe for disaster. A lot of culture wars, obviously, and he he went there. And yeah, I, I could. he did. He did. Hey, Mark, can, can I um, ask you a question? Just a quick one. What do you make of, and the reason I'm asking, because um, often when you're on here, you're kind of unpacking things, things that may seem significant just in headlines. You end up telling us, uh, maybe not so much. But I wanted to ask your thoughts on or comments on the, uh, what was that, the two Russian attack helicopters that were shot down in the Kherson region? What what is is anything significant about this, or is this just the regular um, kind of an extension of what we've been seeing with the counteroffensive in that area? Is anything significant about it? So I, I think actually uh, there's a, a little bit of confusion on that there, but I think there were two separate incidences: one with a Russian helicopter shot down, and one with a Ukrainian helicopter shot down. And and so I, I don't want to say that there's any broader significance other than that fighting continues not only there, but all along the front line everywhere. And there is still the potential for a big Ukrainian counteroffensive there, but the clock is ticking on their window of opportunity. And I think that uh, besides Russia calling up its reservists and starting to bring them into the theater, especially those who got, just got out of the service not too long ago and have a shorter retraining time, but also Russia's attacks uh, crippling the Kiev regime's electrical infrastructure, it's really interrupted their military logistics, which depend on trains and trains that are powered by electricity, which is the whole purpose, why they're being targeted. And it has disrupted their offensive plans everywhere because they simply can't get troops, gear, ammunition, artillery shells, fuel, everything where it's needed uh, to support uh, these offensives. And that's why we've seen that these counteroffensives over the last two to three weeks have just stalled to nothing. And in fact, Russia is making uh, their own now uh, offensives or counteroffensives in several areas, particularly in the Uglodar direction in the Donetsk South. That's something you want to watch. It's not being reported on a lot, but Russia has really made some very significant gains in a very tough, uh, fortified uh, terrain there. And Mark, last thing here before we let you go. Um, Yesterday, President Putin was also in the resort town of Sochi. He was hosting the Armenian and Azerbaijan uh, leaders in the trilateral talks. We know there has been um, a spark of conflict here and there uh, over you know, the Caucasus region. Is there going to be any peace coming out of those talks over Nagorno-Karabakh? Is one side going to concede to the other and give them th- the land? Yeah, okay. So it's it's not set yet, right? This the talks that just happened were just talked about as as kind of setting the ground for potential agreements. Pasinyan said that uh, the prime minister of Armenia, that he wants to sign a deal, peace deal by the end 
of of the year, but I don't know if that's actually going to happen. Putin discussed that some of the big tough issues like uh, border demarcation and limitation, which has never occurred, is still really big sticking points here. There's also kind of rival diplomatic efforts uh, that uh, are being pushed right now. Uh, And Putin made reference to one of them as being pushed by the EU with U.S. support uh, they're making their own attempt to kind of hedge in on, uh, you know, the politics of the South Caucasus here. Uh, and Putin referred to that as the Washington plan. And uh, he uh, hinted that um, th- their plan is for Armenia to just accept that Nagorno-Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan um, and uh, that uh, to talk about what kind of rights, what degree of autonomy Nagorno-Karabakh might have under that. Whereas the Russia-pushed plan uh, involves basically on still kicking that particular beast down the road, focusing more on the things like the border delimitation and envisions keeping Russian peacekeepers in there and Nagorno-Karabakh's final settlement, something to be discussed down the road when perhaps hopefully um, relations might be better uh, in several other spheres. Yeah, I I would certainly think more than just one talk at Sochi uh, would bring about a peace deal. (laughs) That has been raging essentially since the time of the ancient Romans. (laughs) But, you know, hey, you never know. You know, everybody's got to end somewhere at some point, right? So, but we could be hopeful, but I don't don't think Palestine, Israel, right? Yeah, okay. (laughs) I know, I'm, I'm... ever hopeful that people will find peace in these disputed regions, but you know, I I, I'd like to, I'd like to see it in my <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> not holding my breath. I'm just saying I would like to see it. Uh, our friend Mark Sloboda, uh, thank you so much as always for all that insight and, and some good laughs. You guys can check out Mark's brand new uh, YouTube channel called The Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. You can follow him on Facebook. Um, I'm not sure how many people still actually go on that, Mark. You're seeing a lot of hits on yeah, Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't even been updating Facebook. Now, follow me on Twitter or Telegram, Okay, please. go to Twitter. Mark Sloboda, the number one. Thank you for that, Mark. All right, so we got one more update to get to of breaking news. Uh-oh. So from our headlines with President Trump asking SCOTUS, okay. and I, I don't know, I guess he showed me. I said, SCOTUS got a lot on their plate. Mm-hmm. And Trump's over there knocking on the door saying, hey, don't give them my taxes. So what did they say? They replied right now. And they said, okay, we're not going to release them. Yeah. So Trump's taxes being shielded from Congress right now by SCOTUS. And I need to see, because there have been several iterations of people attempting to get... So I don't know at what stage... We're we are with who's requesting. I don't know if the if Congress is, re- yeah. So this has and I and I said this during the campaign. I said this during the six town 2016 campaign when there was a lot of focus on Donald Trump's tax returns and people were saying at the time we need to see those tax returns because we need to see you know we need to know all of his assets. We need to know all of that. All of that literally was BS. What you find out in the tax returns is maybe the effective tax rate that you paid. What people don't realize about this, and I think the form is called a, um, 
SF-284, 286, or something like that. So what this is is a government form that all political appointees, including the, including the president of the United States, so politicians, whether you're in Congress or members of their staff, so if you're a member of a staff or if you're White House staff, you have to fill out that form. It's a federal, it's a government, Office of Government Ethics form, which essentially is what is called the financial disclosure form. So oh. I don't know if you've heard of the financial... Yes. So I, like that's the number. And, and the reason that I bring that up is that you have to list every single account, every single asset. If you have uh, a savings account, a mutual fund account. Uh, about like your credit cards? And- you have to list every. So you don't have to list oh, credit okay. cards, but you have to list every single uh, bank account, um, the, the mutual fund account, everything. All of your assets, property, real estate. You have to list all of these things. Things like if you have a boat. And what they do, it's they give you a range. So you have to say that you know you own a car. Well, the car worth. What do you value it? Oh, you have value. So Trump did that, and Trump. My page when I had to fill mine out, I think mine was about. Two pages. Trump was, was about 150 uh, yeah, plus pages. Yeah, I'd imagine. I mean, he owned this so and that. So I'm saying all overseas. of this to say they don't need to see t- Trump's tax returns you think to just, find out what his assets are. Do you think are. it's just being antagonizing? I think they want to know how much he hit the effective uh, tax what he rate. Paid. Because they want to be able to say Trump didn't pay any taxes. Well, this is, this is you know, part and parcel with the case up in, in New York. Same thing. With Letitia James. Yep. And then they're trying to 86 the whole, the whole Trump family from conducting business in and, the state. Which yes, is crazy. And, 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 and the music is going. But yeah. no, the Department of Justice is not pursuing Donald Trump for any type of crime. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a witch hunt. I hate to say it, quoting Trump, but all right, we'll leave that right there. Our final hour has come to an end. Thank you so much to all the rumblers out there. Thank you to our engineer, our two producers out there. Uh, thank you to all the radio listeners. I am Manila Chan, along with Malik Abdul, Atomic MAGA. We'll be back again for Wednesday on Fault Lines. Thank you so much for staying with us. Bye. Fault Lines.